Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski. Oh, and wow, 2022 is here. I'm so excited. I'm remaking, redoing, and rebooting episodes from the past. And I guess you can call this Jane Campion Part 2, but I also like to think of it as a reimagining featuring different guests who will undoubtedly bring a whole different perspective. Not to mention, well, that uh, last Jane Campion episode happened a decade ago when I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but with me today, I, recru- I recruited two truly special film enthusiasts, podcasters, writers, uh, inspirations for me, to be honest. And first up, you might remember him from most recently the Celine Skiama episode, and he's the host of his own long-running podcast, The Matinee, that I always look forward to. Welcome back to Delightful, Mr. Ryan McNeil. So you're the one who looks forward to it. I was always wondering <laughs> who that was. I don't even look forward to it. Um, I, I kid, do. I kid, I kid. Um, it is a pleasure to be back here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And making her Director's Club debut, one of my favorite film writers on the planet and uh, creator of oldfilmsflicker.com, hashtag Noirvember, hashtag A Year With Women, hashtag Female Filmmaker Friday, and a movie trivia master, you can read her work in a variety of outlets. Uh, the great Mariah Gates. Yay. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. It's always fun to be on a new podcast. Give it up, people. Woo-hoo. So happy. <laughs> uh, Mariah, since this is your first time on the show, I've, I just want to ask, uh, and I'm sure the listeners are curious, how did your love of film get started? How did how did this sort of just evolve into the incredible writing that you do currently? What What really was the impetus for you to pursue film the way you do now um i came out of the womb watching movies no i'm joking <laughs> um but uh actually my parents are um well more my dad than my mom my mom likes movies but my dad was kind of nut like i was and i think it partly stemmed from when he was a kid he was sick a lot and he would stay home and watch old movies on um whatever the old movie station was in the 60s in los angeles Um, and so he got kind of voracious and then like my parents met at a movie, they, or their first date was at a movie. It was, Mm -hmm. um, uh, young Frankenstein. So thank you, Mel Brooks. And they both laughed. So that's how they knew that they were right for each other. And he always just brought movies home. He was a big fan of the VHS revolution because we grew up in the middle of nowhere and we didn't really have really good television. We like did not get cable. Cable did not, was not a thing up on a mountain. And, um, he, he like joined Columbia house and, you know, got like the giant bunch of cassettes and we had like Bill and Ted and um, my mom was really into international cinema. So she always would get like seven samurai and Lawrence of Arabia, which is not, I guess that international, but she, and she was like a stickler for aspect ratio. Cause she took a class in grad school about film aspect ratios. And so she was oh, wow. really mad that VHS is, 
half of them didn't come in the right aspect ratio and she wouldn't buy like a classic unless it was in the right aspect ratio. And so I grew up talking about these kind of things, aspect ratio directors, cinematographers. When I was 10, I think I said I wanted to be a cinematographer. That did not happen, but I definitely thought about it for a while. And, um, you know, like my hometown theater only got one movie each week and it paid for like three days. And <laughs> so, so it was kind of a precious commodity seeing movies where I grew up. And, and, um, thankfully we did have a, a video rental store and I was probably their best customer and they, they probably went out of business because I graduated and left. Um, they, no, they, they, they did kick around for another 10 years or so. I think Netflix is what killed them, but, um, you know, that's just sort of how it was just always was. And, and, um, you know, it got easier and easier to watch more and more movies as the internet, you know, kind of grew and first through maybe illicit means. And then now just the, the amount of streaming options that have come out in the last five years boggles my mind. I have, I have all these spreadsheets of movies I try to watch and I never get to any of them because <laughs> new movies show up and it's overwhelming, but um, that's, I guess the, short version. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the first time I heard you was on a favorite podcast of mine called increment vice. Oh yes. And uh, cause I'm kind of obsessed with all things inherent vice and the fact that there was like what a 45 episode show or more. Travis's <laughs> that... podcast. He's a wild man. No kidding. <laughs> I, I just, I just ate that up though. It gave me a greater appreciation for that film, even though I, I kind of loved it. The, the, the second time I saw it, the first time I was like, Hmm, as I think most people have that reaction and a lot of people don't love it the way I do. And I understand that, but uh, you know, it's interesting because I've just re revised my uh, favorite director's list. Cause uh, my, 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 my two favorites have mainly been Paul Thomas Anderson and David Lynch. But now uh, I think I number three is Jane Campion. Wow. Uh, yeah. That I, sounds I re right. That I, sounds really right. Feel, I really <laughs> approved. Feel um a lot watching her work uh including her some of her early films her short films and everything but uh and i also want to acknowledge that that the two of you recorded an episode on the matinee cast recently on the power of the dog so that i'm obviously linking in the show notes so everybody can hear because we kind of it's very different than what blank check does and oddly enough they're covering jane campion uh right now they go through each individual film episode by episode. But for my show, we kind of just binge on everything and talk about as much as we want, as much as we can. And uh, for Jane Campion, gosh, I just, it's, it's hard to just be like, well, you know, in the last episode, I did talk a lot about the piano and in the cut. So maybe I won't, you know, give lengthy monologues or anything on those films. I will share my thoughts, of course, but I will leave that to the two of you to really highlight more than I would because I've already shared a lot of thoughts on both of those films. Granted, a decade ago, so those thoughts have probably changed a little. But, you know, yeah, I, whew, well, I'm just you, beyond you stoked. Both you both live in areas of the country where basketball is very important. So I'm going to use a basketball metaphor on this. Uh, Go for you know, it. Like there, there's a lot of teams where it's just the, the secret of their success is just pass LeBron the ball and get the hell out of the way or pass Jordan the ball and get the hell out of the way. That is basically my whole strategy today. I'm just going to keep passing Mariah the ball and just clearing <laughs> the side because it's just, you know, when, when you have LeBron on your team, why not just – you know, get the heck out of the way and watch them do what they do so very well. Um, no kidding. Know. 
Uh, it's it, yeah, the 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 power of the dog episode that we that we recorded. Um, it, it was it's one of my favorite episodes that I've done in a while, and it's it's all Mariah. Um, you know, I'm I'm able to kind of formulate where I what I want to ask her about, but generally speaking, it's just like so. Mariah, teach me about this because you're so much smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and there are a couple of titles that I'm not like as high on, and I think. Uh, Mariah, in that episode, you mentioned that you do have a love for pretty much everything. Yeah, uh, she's she she and David Lynch are my two favorite directors. Um, I could watch anything they do over and over and be happy, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, understandable. But there, the, we'll get to like kind of in the middle. I, I think most people, the consensus would say these two films that I'm not quite as high up on. Uh, a lot of people feel the same or they at least have issues with them. So I would definitely want to hear your perspective on those films. But uh, before we talk about the director, there's another fun segment that we do here on the show. And it's simply called, what else have we watched recently? Um, and we kind of just bring up one title we want to highlight uh, each, and you know it could just be anything or something recent. I'm definitely going to be talking about um, a Sundance title in particular, but there's, I mean, there's that's the thing too is like I I didn't see nearly as much as most people have because I didn't get any press credentials or anything fancy. Um, but well, yeah, we'll get to that. But I'd, I'd rather start with Ryan this time. Let's see what you want to talk about for this segment, if there's anything that uh, you saw recently that is not related to uh, Ms. Campion. I was going to say, aside from a whole lot of Jade Campion, like my, my whole letterboxed feed lately has been like all Campion all the time. Uh, if anybody like was looking at it, I'm sure they could tell that I was prepping for a podcast. Uh, I watched, well, one thing I watched last night, cause I finally got done with all my homework um, is uh Criterion Channel has a whole subsection for Technicolor, um, hmm. where you can find stuff like Black Narcissus and the Red Shoes and Blight Spirit and all kinds of, you know, the, the normal Technicolor um, go-tos that are kind of like seen as like the totems of what that color quality could do in film. One that was there that I hadn't seen that I was curious about for several reasons, um, and I bet five bucks Mariah's seen this, um, is Niagara. Oh, yes. Yeah, Not only <laughs> have I seen it, I saw it on the big screen yeah, oh, say, you, you, about you, 10 years you, ago. Yeah, you've, you've written thesis <laughs> papers on it, I'm sure. It's um, so good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Henry Hathaway, 1953, um, Marilyn Monroe, Joseph Cotton. Uh, I, I don't, what I, what I love about, um, what I really love about like any platform, I don't care like how populous or how niche it is, is I love it when they curate collections and they highlight things like like technicolor or you know um directors of color or uh you know a movement out of a country like check new wave or something like that so having you know having all this content it's like drinking out of the fire hose so having a little bit of direction <laughs> sometimes is really really valuable and yeah looking through all the technicolor films this was like the one that jumped out that i hadn't seen which i was interested in because it's it's one of the fewer films where Marilyn Monroe is 
more dramatic. She, you know, she tended to play things more comedic and more light. Um, it's it's really cool to see her doing something that's heavier. Joseph Cotton doing what Joseph Cotton does. The whole thing set in Niagara Falls back when that was like a destination rather than just <laughs> kind of a, a place people end up. Um, it's 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 trashy. It's uh, it's beautiful. It's engaging. It, it's. It basically it's about the like these two couples that happen to be in the same Niagara motel, one celebrating their honeymoon, the other are just kind of just happen to be there. It's like a getaway, and they both get caught up in in the the second couple, the, the getaway couple that's played by Joseph Cotton and Marilyn Monroe. This whole illicit affair that's going on that just gets darker and darker as the film goes on and it's it's gorgeous and it's trashy and it's oh so magnificent inside of 90 minutes yeah it's a wonderfully lurid <laughs> film this, and for sure some of the best reds i think yeah the technicolor yeah. ever produced outside of the red shoes yeah yeah if you want to see the color magenta pop on screen oh. and you know for bonus points have it wrapped around Marilyn monroe watch this movie yeah, and I'm seeing that it's written by, uh, or at least co-written by Charles Brackett, and I'm like, yes. oh my gosh, I need yeah. to see this because obviously yeah. he worked with uh, one of my favorites, Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. on several several occasions. Uh, yeah, I'm not I, I'm not too familiar with Henry Hathaway, the director. I guess he was best known uh, as a Western director. I am a fan of Randolph Scott, so I need to see more of his work. He worked um, at Fox for quite a bit in the 40s and 50s and did another of my favorite noirs called um, with Lucille Ball called The Dark Corner Mm, that um, has has maybe my favorite sound design in any film noir. Oh, yes. You're speaking my language, woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about it. I'm so excited. I'm going to have to catch up with both of these, maybe even tonight, because I've 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 been dipping into that Criterion channel more and more and more and just like, oh, I wish I didn't have a day job. I just want to stay home and watch everything (laughs) on the Criterion channel. Good Lord. There's so much to catch up with there that I'm so excited about. Um, So, yeah, Mariah, I know that you've been busy binging on Sundance titles. Is there anything you want to bring up from that experience? Yeah, I I ended up watching 46 feature. Oh, my Lord. Which is a, about fifty five percent of what was programmed, which is insane. <laughs> um, I will say that the only reason that was humanly possible is I was covering several for a couple of outlets, and I got early screeners. If I hadn't done that, I would not have been able to see that many. And um, you were doing it from home. And I was doing it from home, so you, I didn't have to run from theater to theater, which <laughs> was really great. Although um, my boyfriend made me stop a few times. He was like, "We're we're gonna go eat. You need to leave your room." <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "Fine." <laughs> Okay. Did you have a did you have a green vegetable? Well, I yes, yes. Good. I did. All a right. few times. Nice. I, you know, it was I saw the sun a couple times. But um, <laughs> if it were up to me, I would have seen every single feature. Um, but that's probably healthier that I didn't. Um, but my favorite of all of them was actually the first one I screened, and it was so good. I texted him and I was like, I don't know that anything at the fest is gonna top this. I, I can't believe I started with this movie. Um, and a few things came close. But this really was like made for me. It's um, a Finnish coming of age film. The English title is called Girl Picture, but hmm. the um, Finnish title is actually Girls, Girls, Girls. And it makes sense if you if you watch it. I think the Finnish title is much better. Um, she's trying to reclaim the idea of Girls, Girls, Girls. And it's three different girls sort of over three different weekends 
uh, two of which fall in love, one of which is just trying to find a man who will or a boy who will actually like give her sexual pleasure as opposed to, you know, just lying there. And um, it reminded me a lot of the like the girl side of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm. Um, which, which obviously Cameron Crowe wrote, wrote that, but Amy Heckerling added a lot of her own experience as a girl to the, the girls in Fast Times. And, and it, this felt ve- that true and honest about, uh, like burgeoning sexuality and the heightened emotions and, and the gossip of being a teenage girl. And, um, I would put it up there with like, uh, virgin suicides in terms of like best, depictions of of teenage girls it's a comedy like more of a comedy than virgin suicide so like just in terms of raw emotions though um and it's beautifully shot and it makes you want to go to finland like i was like is finland really like this or is this like just the best time in finland i don't know um but all the characters felt rich and real and the emotions felt real and it reminded me of being a teenage girl again um in the the good parts of it not the bad parts of it because it was it's not it's one of those movies that's like here's the good stuff <laughs> a little bit toe dips into the bad stuff but um i just really loved it it was pink and gauzy and and really fit the title and just buoyant i loved it well that sounds great yeah no there's kidding. there's there's a lot to look forward to but yeah i I did opt just to watch a few Sundance titles. I knew were getting buzz. And unfortunately, one of those uh, did, wasn't Koganada's After Yang, which I know everybody is, is saying is was a highlight of the festival. And, and good Lord, my love of Columbus is uh, pretty powerful. <laughs> I, I, I often think about that movie and the fact that I really don't get that excited about architecture. And that movie made me get excited about architecture. Um, but yeah, I didn't see that yet. And there's a film that was just acquired by Shudder uh, called Speak No Evil. And that one's so good. I, it's, but it's hard to talk about, right? Like, yeah, you can't, can't talk about it. No, I know. We can't <laughs> go into too much detail because you don't want to spoil anything. And it's some, one of those that you should just go in completely cold. But I, I, you know, it felt to me like a little bit of Michael Haneke and uh, a little Lars von Trier. Uh, and maybe it's like their own take on force majeure or something like that. It so- made me so nervous <laughs> that I honestly wanted to vomit. And then the last 20 minutes happened and I was like, how am I still breathing? How am yeah. I still breathing? It was so good. And I'm not usually a big horror person. Mm-hmm. Th- this might even make my end of the year list. I liked it that much. Like, we'll see. But I need to yeah. revisit it when it hits shutter, but it was, I watched it really late at night too. And I was like, ah, I can't sleep now. Oh God. So I good. know. Right. And it's like, so yeah. Any, any, I think scenarios with awkward get togethers or dinner parties really get to me and make me anxious. <laughs> yeah. It would be yeah. a great double feature with like the invitation. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and you totally. would like never, you would never go to anyone's house ever again. <laughs> yeah. And, and another quick title that I'm going to recommend, but I was also a little surprised by just the high praise and acclaim is the uh, second film from Cooper Rafe, I think uh, cha-cha real smooth, which is kind of a terrible title. Uh, <laughs> Didn't that get bought by Apple? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. for a lot of money. For right. a lot of money. Yeah. And it's a heartwarming sort of crowd pleaser. And I but I just wasn't like over the moon about it the way some people seem to be. I, I wasn't either. We uh Robert and I watched it together and when it was over, we were like, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of how it's I felt. It's pleasant. It really is mm-hmm. pleasant. It's like oh, yeah. if you 
take a Xanax or something, but I don't, I don't watch movies in order to be calmed. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> you know. I think, uh, you know, Dakota Johnson just keeps getting better and better with every film that she's in. And there's that lovely mother daughter relationship that I think I would have been more interested in just following them than uh, Cooper's character. Cause you know, he's just kind of a drunk goofy dude at times, <laughs> but I mean, like the movie has its heart in the right place. So I'm not like dismissing it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I feel like that. I think the writer director actor is 23 and it feels like a movie that yes. you would make at 23 if you're a nice guy, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily have wisdom yet. Right. That's what it felt like to me. Um, yeah, and like that's how more he's... naive than he thinks he is. And that's how his debut felt for me, uh, Shithouse, which is another terrible title. (laughs) But uh, I I market these days. Yeah, I do like I I do like his writing. and I think he's, you know, a likable presence. So I'm curious to see where he goes. But yeah, people are putting this like up there with Coda from last year. Which, you know, I think was way more effective, especially on an emotional level. It is uh, nice to see that the Sundance machine is still churning out the hype, you know, that it, mm-hmm. it, has, it hasn't yeah. slowed down one bit after all these years. Even even virtual. Same, I mean, and the same goes for like early films that are harder to comprehend. They got, oh, yeah. you know, they were dismissed uh, ah. after the premiere. I'm talking about Nanny. And then more people saw Nanny and were like, wait a minute, this is really good. What were those people that first saw it thinking? And obviously then it went big, but it's it was exactly the same kind of hype machine as in Sundance, where um, the people who get first access to films aren't necessarily the ones you should listen to. You should wait until the second <laughs> yeah. screening happens and see what the better consensus is. Festival so, goggles are a thing. That's all I'm saying. It's a thing, even if you're at your house <laughs> with your cat. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And the last one I'll talk about um, quickly here is brainwashed, uh, which is a documentary. Did you see this? No, Ryan? I missed that. I missed that one. It's the Nina um, Menkes. Yeah. I'm a little yeah. torn on it, but I still think it's really important to watch at some point it's based on a talk that she gave um i think it's called sex and power the visual language of cinema and of course it's 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 mainly about the male gaze and how it's infused itself into so many movies obviously due to it being a male dominated industry um but like yeah i mean she you know talks about how the cinematic language kind of places the cisgender heterosexual male in the subjective position as the voyeur and places the woman in the objectified position, the one being viewed and kind of brings up like just how this is done through lighting and framing. Uh, But it's framed. The the documentary itself is framed like a Ted talk, Mm. which mm, (laughs) that's kind of like, I don't know that structure didn't necessarily work in terms of execution. I just thought, yeah, I, I mean, you probably could watch this as a TED Talk, but at the same time, it brings up some examples that really make you uh, recontextualize certain scenes from certain films. And I don't want to go through like a laundry list of all the movies she brings up, but um, there's there's an interesting moment involving Rosanna Arquette's reaction to a scene in one of my very favorite movies, After Hours, hmm. where you know, her dead character is embraced by the camera in this kind of creepy sexual manner. And even she points that out that now she looks at that shot differently than when she was filming it. So 
there's moments like that that really yeah like hit you hard and also make you go back and think about how the way the camera is placed and why it's like that and the you know the majority of cinematographers are male um and yeah i mean and and, and no one's exempt even a couple of women uh are you know a couple of female filmmakers are talked about a little bit uh, including most recently, uh, Titan or Tatane. I still yeah, don't know how to I say had, it. <laughs> I had heard about that. And I feel like that's part of why I didn't want to watch it is, yeah. is I think that I think by one person saying these other women are framing because they're they're doing the male gaze without realizing it takes away the agency of those women and the women who shot those movies with those women. I think I think I think there's some subversion that a lot of women do of the male gaze. And I right. think Titan is an example of that. I agree. Um, because it's such a queer film and it's a it's about it's shot like you're lur- you're luridly but it's it's not it's not like consuming the same way and and I do I like Nina Menkes a lot but I do think that she has a very distinct like idea of what is feminist that isn't open to other women's interpretations of what is feminist <laughs> um and so it, it always is difficult when one person says they are the they have the key, you know what right, I mean? When, right. when, when art is, there's no one person that has the key to how to interpret art. Yeah. Um, and, but, but if you only have one documentary talking about this then suddenly everyone thinks this is the only, you know, way to look at things and it gets rough and we just need yeah. more perspectives. I think is, is kind of, I, nice I completely agree. And, but yeah, at the same time, it gives me a lot of food for thought in terms of like, you know, the way, um, you know, like Kathy Moriarty's characters introduced in Raging Bull. There's like, oh, I do think that Raging Bull is really disgusting. Actually, the first time mm. I watched it, I loved it, and the second time I watched it, I was like, what? Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, there are a few films that have fallen in my eyes as hard and as fast as Raging Bull. Yeah, it's it's rough, but I to to that point though, I think what is a good thing about this documentary is it'll make people rewatch movies. Yes. Um, yeah. With a, with and, a different uh, with a different perspective, uh, yeah. And, yeah, and I do think that that is important. Whether whether all of her points are cogent or not, I I am a absolute fanatic for rewatching, um, mm-hmm. rewatching at different ages, rewatching when you've talked to somebody about mm-hmm. you know that like great example. Um, when I saw the souvenir, I didn't particularly care for it, and then I talked to my friend who loved it, and she explained why it meant so much to her. And then I rewatched it, and I was like, oh, I can see what she what she saw in this now. I still yeah. don't, you know, it's still not for me, but I get the other perspectives. And I just, I do think that rewatching films can be really powerful. Yeah. And that's probably why I do. And that's probably, that's probably why, like, even just to kickstart this year on my show, I want to go back and watch movies or talk about directors that have been already covered on the show because I've changed in the past decade. Yeah. yeah. You know? I would imagine, I would imagine uh, Jane Campion, I feel like when Bright Star came out, was kind of waning people were like wait who and in the last 10 years 12 years since that film people are have put her back on the like best directors ever list and i'm so grateful because she is have we ever mariah we talked about this on on my show did we ever figure out what why she took the break Uh, i think she couldn't get funding mostly and she was making these tv shows and because she could get the funding to do tv and she was co-directing all of those so there was you know, it's the same reason that David Lynch stopped making movies. He and uh, John Waters, like they have very uncompromising visions and they need, they know how much money it's going to take to make what they want to make. And they're not mm-hmm. going to make anything for less. No, they're not going to half-ass it. Right. Now. Yeah. 
And, and I think with top of the lake, she was able to get, because they were filmed in Australia and then she had, um, you know, co-writer and directors who were also Australian there. It's easier to get funding for a couple of people than one person's vision. I think. Yeah. Wow. We just transitioned beautifully. That was Look great. At that. <laughs> I'm impressed. Ryan, you should just host the show, <laughs> but no, I think, yeah, we'll just, yeah. Transition into the director of the episode. cinephiles are familiar with the name Jane Campion and we've like I mentioned covered her in the past but I wanted to revisit her work due to my sort of instant unabashed love for her latest film The Power of the Dog which is definitely a front runner runner to win best picture but but uh, maybe I shouldn't say that I just got to be careful um but at the same no hitter it's like a no hitter come on (laughs) don't talk to the picture right right um and uh, I saw Bright Star for the first time, and I had to make sure I didn't start sobbing in front of my mom. Because um, that's it, literally my reaction. I had to <laughs> leave the house. I wouldn't cry in yeah. front of my mom. I feel it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Holy crap!" I was not expecting that kind of uh, response. But at the same time, no, she her films genuinely moved me. Oddly, my two favorite films of 2021 were Power of the Dog and Petite Maman, and mm. It, it that really goes to say that like I'm more engaged with the mood, the emotional level that like they're speaking to me on some sort of deeper level rather than like, Oh, that was cool. Or, you know, there's a, there's a mood piece and I, you know, they're built on these blueprints of like just pure interior emotion rather than thinking about plot beats or story devices or even having some things play out in this kind of logical A to B to C fashion. Uh, I, I mean, I know when I first talked about her, I didn't necessarily like say, oh, she's not the greatest storyteller because she's so focused on mood and atmosphere and character. But I think that all cre- creates and enhances her storytelling capabilities is when she does focus on those things and she has way more empathy for, for her characters. So that alone just gets the gym seal of approval uh, in general for all of her work. Like there's never a moment where I'm like thinking she's not like even background characters get kind of their own moment, even if they're just, you know, like cleaning uh, a classroom, you know, a janitor will suddenly get a moment and I think that I just really respond to that. And obviously the way she portrays passion and desire is just unparalleled to most, just about any director out there. I just, I kind of feel like the sensuality of everything going on. So, yeah, I mean, like she makes films on her own terms and obviously she gives voice to female characters and their need for self-actualization and I just can't get over how moved I get by watching all of her work, including her early work. So it's, it's just, she has an incredible body of work. It's just amazing to me. So I'm really excited to talk further. Um, 
Mariah, what was your first experience seeing a Jane Campion film? Was it Bright Star or did you go early on to see something else? It was the piano and um, Mm. I didn't see it when it came out. And I I actually uh, didn't see it until I was in college because my my mom saw it when it came out. And she, I guess, thought I couldn't handle full frontal male nudity. And when I did finally see it, I was like, Mom, you know, I watched Train Spotting, right? Like, (laughs) Train Spotting has that and a baby crawling on the wall, you know, like (laughs) comparatively. I should have seen Piano much earlier than, oh, you know what? I mistake. I made a mistake there. Um, I forgot when I was, uh, but yeah, my mom didn't want me to see it because of Harvey Keitel's penis. But I remember now, I actually, the first Jane Campion I saw was The Portrait of a Lady because when I was nine or 10, I was really obsessed with John Malkovich Mm. And um, this was Aren't rated we all? I mean, yes, I mean, as, right. As one should be. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it was because I saw in the line of fire, and I took the wrong the wrong things from his creepy character in that. But um, he plays a lot of creeps, and I love it. So I rented that because it was rated PG, and my mom couldn't stop me. And I, <laughs> that should not be rated PG. It's rated PG because there's nothing, there's no nudity, and there's no like language. But that is an emotionally complex film. And when I was nine, I was not prepared. Um, and I recently rewatched it for the first time, uh, the Academy theater showed it. I hadn't seen it in, you know, like 25 years. And I was like, holy shit, I should not have watched this. <laughs> I didn't understand anything that was happening. Um, fantastic movie. And so, but then I didn't see another one until I saw the piano in college. And, and I was like, why did she not let me see this as a kid? This is dumb. This movie is so good. And then from there, um, I think the third one I saw was bright star. Um, which I hadn't seen in theaters until a couple of weeks ago when the Academy showed it. And I finally got to die a happy death in the theater. But, um, and then from there, I just caught up on the rest uh, over the, the next, you know, I guess from the piano, I was uh, 2000 and probably six when I rented that. So for the last what is it, how many years is that? 16 years. I just slowly caught up on all the others. And most of her shorts when I was in grad school, I was always watching shorts. So I watched a lot of her shorts and um, I don't know. She's, she's rarely disappointed me. Um, there's only one of her features that I feel like I need to revisit. Cause I was, I wasn't on board, but I feel like if I watched it again, I'd probably like it better. Mm. I'll be interested to hear what that is. But Ryan, what was your first experience seeing Jane Campion? And what was your thoughts initially? I mean, my first experience with it would have been the piano when I was about 18 or so. And I, I really got to confess that I think that was a movie that I half watched that I, I put on and I, I was like moving about the room because it, Mm -hmm. it didn't affect me near as much as it did the subsequent times that I've watched it, which is to say something of, the changing taste of a person as they get older um, and also just kind of my changing taste in film. Although at, at the time I saw it, 18, 19, I was into that kind of like prestige type picture. Maybe not as much as I am now. I'm, uh, I'm a lot more interested now in the classic stories and the emotion that's involved in them. They're, they're very subdued. They're very, very subdued. And for a while, it took me, it took me a long time to actually get into that mindset of a story of understanding like the emotional charge of a touch, um, you know, which I, I, I own, I cop to that, um, but I'm there now. So yay. Um, 
The first of hers that I actually saw proper and fully engaged in, uh, oddly enough, was in the cut in 2003. I yes. saw I saw that that came to that came to TIFF that year. And that was one of my selections for TIFF that year. And I got to watch her introduce it um, and and watch that uh, craziness unfold and not really know what I was going to be getting myself into. Um, and I know and I thought. I remember I, I remember enjoying the heck out of it, but then I remember just being so confused when I came away from it and it was just getting slammed like no tomorrow. It's been really fascinating and wonderful to watch this turnaround on in the cut and see it kind of getting its flowers now, almost 20 years later of like it's it's now regarded as this misunderstood piece of cinema that's really kind of fantastic um but that was that was my first proper uh introduction to her with like full attention and full engagement and then everything all the other dominoes fell in after that i remember when that came out i really wanted to see it because i love make ryan and um it did not come to my hometown theater and uh it, i think it played in sacramento and I was there for a doctor's appointment. And I remember cutting out the ad for it out of the paper. I ha- I still have the advertisement I cut out with like Meg Ryan's face and um, staring at the camera or whatever. And, but my, I think my dad wouldn't take me. He was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't. Probably a good idea. Yeah. So we didn't see it. Um, yeah. I think my dad and I have seen some awkward things together, but I feel like that probably would have pushed the, pushed him over the edge. But um and then when I finally did get to see it. I was like, I knew I was going to love this. <laughs> I knew I was going to love it. I'm, I'm, I'm just been really great the last probably two years, really, that mostly women have right, yeah, like exactly. have been coming in and saying, like, you guys are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like you were dumb then. <laughs> you're dumb now. And what really sucks is not only did it sort of torpedo Campion, she only got one other film out after that. It completely torpedoed. Meg Ryan. Oh, she was done. It's it's yeah. so it's so weird to see her in something like that. I mean, it's it's strange to watch her and Ruffalo in that movie and see like one star basically crashing to earth and the other one start taking the ascent. Yeah, mm. and it's it's just shows you how it was all built on sexism because oh, totally. he can be he can be this like sexy psychotic cop and have a, a 20 year career and she finally America's sweetheart like shows her tits and it's like no movies for you. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. It at really all. sucks. No. Cause it's a great performance from her. It truly is. Uh, yeah. And we're not going to go into long drawn out reviews of every single film, especially since, you know, I, like I mentioned, I've covered a couple of them at length, but we'll sort of start from the beginning. Uh, I, I've got to say like her, her short films, uh, I thought were great. I, I, re- I know it was more of a collaboration, but passionless moments, is this um, short film that she uh, co-directed and collaborated on. I believe it was with her partner at the time. Uh, And it it reminded me a little bit of the work of Roy Anderson, kind of by way of like Bunuel. And it's like, it's capturing these like rather mundane moments that people experience and giving them kind of this more grace and, and emphasis as being their little, their own little works of art that, you know, really sort of, showcases her sense of humor but also just her interest in uh, details and the way people live when they're alone or thinking their thoughts i i I wouldn't say if it's i wouldn't say it's an essential work but i kind of enjoyed just sort of the experimental uh the experimentation that she brought to that film and certainly her other short films are great it's interesting too that she uh, sort of co-created that with um 
I think it's Gerard Lee who, yeah. um, who obviously she co-created top of the lake with, and you can see, you can see how they like, they're really in sync in the ways that um, very small moments that people might otherwise think are not cinematic are completely f- filled with intense emotional weight. Mm-hmm. That's, her, that's her whole it. jam, isn't it? Yeah, like, and you see like, it in this time film. and again in her films. You know, you she she has a an incredible way of giving so much meaning to these little moments. Yes, and and Peel, which is the one that um, I, I think both Peel and oh, yeah. moments played it can. Peel is the one I saw in grad school and was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> How is this so good? Um. She's yeah. a genius. And a girl's own story. That was amazing too. And the, the song that ends that I can't find it anywhere, but I, I was like, Holy crap, this is totally my jam. Cause it's kind of Cynthia. And I think Alex Proyas, uh, he, he, he might've wrote, written the music for that song and it's pretty haunting. Uh, and it was um, the original film that Campion and Kidman were going to make together. Right. And, yeah, it started their relationship and Kidman, you know, backed out um, when she found out what the real plot was. Mm-hmm. How and, old did she have been at the time? Um, teenager, 14 mm-hmm. or 15, I think. And, um, you know, it'd be, obviously it'd be a hot minute before they made a movie together. But yeah. um, she definitely, at least early Kidman, has a very similar, like, vibe in terms of a, her characters always have this undercurrent of emotional violence, the same way that Campion loves to dissect emotional violence. And I would have been interesting to see her as a teenager in a movie like this, but yeah, I know she was in that movie flirting. Was it? Yep. Yeah. Flirting. And yeah. I remember that pretty well. I think I got to cover that soon. If not this year for my 1992 retrospective podcast that I do, I can't remember what year that came out, but I th- want to say it's this year or the next year, but Sweetie is a really great film. Um, it, it started with the idea for her to sort of showcase relationships that don't work or relationships where they feel love and ne- don't necessarily want to be intimate anymore. And it's just a really darkly comedic story about two sisters who have never really like properly addressed their their strained relationship with each other or their toxic family. And she's definitely interested in family dynamics and communication breakdowns throughout all of her work. It's, it reminds me of the ones that we get to see with the family and Holy smoke at times, which yeah. I think are some of the strongest parts of that film. I also do want to, before we get too far into uh, sweetie, I want to point out people should watch two friends if they can. It's, oh, sure. Yeah. It's, it's counted as a TV movie, quote unquote, because it aired on Australian television, but it's not a TV movie. It played at Kenya. It was a little cold on that um, one. That was, maybe it was just because yeah. it was the last one of hers I watched and I, I took oh, things Oh, I love it so much. It as, as someone who had like a very close female friendship that would ex- was explosive, Right, um, right. It it really me and my I mean she she knows her, her name was Sadie and <laughs> and we had we had an explosive friendship and I feel like Two Friends was one of the first uh, movies I ever saw that really tapped into how violent girls can be towards each other and then mm, and then sure. patch it have the um, the strength to patch it. Um, it's a beautiful movie. And it's yeah. available, I think, from Milestone Films. So, so it's a, that one's on Criterion as well. 
Yeah, on Criterion channel. channel. That's, where I, that's where I watch yeah. that. I think it's it's just because like I again because I watch like it's on me. Like I watched it out of order, and I think I actually watched it in between Power of the Dog and. Um, bright star so i'm like i mm. kind of put it jammed it in between these two like masterpieces, masterpieces. Of yeah that'll <laughs> do know? it that'll do yeah, it it's, it was a bad it is, bad it is bad curation on my it's part clearly a first film yeah yeah. It, yeah it very much is but you see the kernels of of the kind of stuff mm-hmm. that she um especially that she starts doing better in sweetie whereas Definitely. it where in sweetie instead of friends it's the sisters that are having the same sort of um, charged relationship, let's put it that way. Um, The Sweeties, also the first film of hers, I believe, to have full frontal male nudity, something that she has in almost every Mm. one of her films. So, bless. Yeah, she's like, (laughs) I think she's quoted as saying, strip more, act less, or something like that. Yeah, she (laughs) there's a great interview she did in the early 90s I'm forgetting maybe bomb magazine or one of those, you know, like feminist magazines from the nineties talking about why she always has full frontal male nudity in her films. And it's, it's very um, like combative in that she's, she's called a um, um, misandrist a lot. Like she hates Hmm. men, but I don't think if you hate men that much, you would have so much full frontal male nudity. I think she's just honest about how shitty men can be and men don't like to see that. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> at least no, they I didn't in, yeah. in that part they aren't used to it you weren't used to seeing how, what women see in men yeah i wouldn't mind a 4k release of this one because it's so gorgeous uh i mean that's the thing i always walk away from any of her films is just they're so beautifully shot and just like the attention to detail whether if it's like circling a teacup or walking between the cracks in the sidewalk or just the way those things. coins hit the, hit the ground in the, yeah. in the parking garage. Like it's exactly. like right, yeah. at, right out of the gate, like with sweetie, you really do get an idea of her eye and what she's going to get out of her cinematographers. It's, it's just gorgeous in all kinds of corners where films kind of often just don't bother to be gorgeous. Yeah. It, it, there's, um, a shot where she kind of pans over the, the ceramic knickknacks. Yeah. Mm-hmm, I love. Mm-hmm, yeah. Cause the ceramic knickknacks come back in a big way later. Yeah. And it's, um, it's one of the first where she uses like the gauziness of, of curtains in a mm-hmm. really interesting way. Sure. Um, just such a, it's, and, but then it's such like, it's such a soft gauzy movie, how it's shot. And then, but it's such an angry movie. <laughs> at the right. same time i love yeah. that tension yeah there's definitely that tension throughout and it's you know it's about people who are broken and who are trying to deal with that brokenness in ways that you know that they think are going to be helpful but it, it ten- unintentionally ends up hurting those around them and i think a lot of those themes are uh you know focused on throughout a lot of her work and yeah that i i think the a lot of her films early on were shot by Sally Bongers and just that, just that choice alone to have her shoot these films, I think automatically makes, makes those choices more interesting in terms of what to focus on. Uh, Yeah. I just, I, I go back to this one once in a while and kind of love it more and more because first time I saw it was like, this is kind of like a, 
uh, like more of a surreal early nineties, like almost like Hal Hartley movie or something because of the <laughs> way people interact with one another uh, isn't necessarily grounded in realism at times. And that's, that's something you sort of have to acclimate yourself to as you're watching her work. And then she'll have the, you know, something like the, 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 the tree sequence there. Yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah, just like, the, Whoa. The, the, the chopping of the tomatoes. I really love that mm, sequence. Yeah. Um, this is a movie I've interviewed a lot of, of female directors and two movies that come up a lot are this and the piano. But when people bring up sweetie, they mostly bring up how, rare it was if you saw this in 1989 and maybe you were a teenager in your early 20s and you're a woman and you thought about making movies this was one of those first times where a lot of women saw women represented how they knew them angry and and sexual and a little destructive and yet with empathy for that if you if you saw a destructive woman before this it was like glenn close you know boiling a rabbit or something and and you didn't really get to see how p- women can be destructive and gentle at the same time. And and I think a lot of women saw this movie and said, "Wow, I think I can I can make a movie now." A lot of other movies like this, like you would be you in the audience would be predisposed not to like Dawn at all. Like you would have no you know empathy for this kind of destructive not even destructive in that way but this real disruptive is the word i'm looking for yeah. there's a real disruptive yeah. force in her family and, and and in her in her circle like you would just look at this person you'd be like i can't deal but this movie really frames her in this way of saying you know there is still a lot of warmth to her there is still a lot to care for and just this is not this is not a piece of garbage this is not somebody just to cut off and cut ties there is a lot to this person and that the the care that Campion brings to telling her story is really exceptional. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's um really a testament to what a strong POV she had, even as a young filmmaker, mm-hmm. and how she fought for that vision. And I think you see it in this whole run of her films. Like she came out of the gate saying, "Like I have." this is how I see women and this is how I see interpersonal relationships and I'm going to keep doing it. And you see it over and over again with these quote unquote difficult women, but she has such empathy for them because they're not actually difficult. They're, they're just actual women. And, and I love they're that. Just dealing. They're just dealing. Yeah. They're just who they, what, they're just whatever hand real. happens to be dealt with them at the moment. Yeah. And I'm also drawn towards films that portray introversion. Like, you know, Kay is kind of an introvert mm-hmm. and, you know, I think of, uh, there's that film heavy by James Mangold where uh, uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince just plays the ultimate introvert who barely can convey any emotion and talk to people. And I think that also leads us to, you know, just Janet frame in, you know, her, her, the way she really had struggled with, with social uh, social cues to where people really thought something was mentally wrong with her you know and but it's you know an angel at my table is also a film yes it's a biopic about janet frame but it's also a film about like hypersensitivity mm-hmm. and just like you know not knowing how to uh interact with other people at times but at the same time she finds this love 
of writing and self-expression and, and finds romance in experiencing solitude, which I think a lot of writers can relate to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, I love Angel at My Table almost just as much as Sweeney. This was one one of the last campions I saw. One of my mentors in grad school, this was his favorite, not just his favorite campion, I think maybe his favorite movie. And he's he's a writer, so I can really see why he loved it so much. Um, I was sort of daunted by how long it is. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can handle this, um, but it, it flies by. It really flies by. Carrie Fox is brilliant in it. Oh, God. Yeah. And so like definitely listeners if you haven't seen it don't be afraid of the length it it'll fly by it's in chapters too just in case you're really afraid you can you can take breaks it gives you moments right refill your water you know (laughs) use the facilities it's okay it'll be all right it'll wait for you yeah and it does the thing that i prefer in my biopics in in that it's not like a greatest hits clip show or, you know, necessarily like these are the most amazing moments and look at how amazing they were. It's it's really strung together. And in this, yeah, like we mentioned, it jumps through chapters in time. Uh, and, oh, the, there's this horrific section that takes place inside the mental institution when Frame was wrongfully diagnosed with schizophrenia that just, oh, my Lord, it unnerves me to no end, especially in just knowing how, uh, you know, mental health was treated back then. And, and certainly like if you showed any signs of awkwardness, then yes, you next thing, you know, you're getting electroshock treatments. I mean, Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's so hard it's, to watch. It's really, I think a lot of her films that are about like intellectual women um, showcase the way that like pushing against how you expect women to be often becomes violent like from the state right Mm. and you you see it in this one you kind of see it in um uh, holy smoke a little bit where and even the piano where these women are just pushing against what women are supposed to be and and if you push against what women are supposed to be especially back 100 plus years ago um you must be crazy (laughs) <laughs> and so we're going to treat you that way. And it's, it's really interesting to uh, starting in the nineties, you saw a lot of women filmmakers, I think, push back against this idea that there were so many crazy women in the past. Cause I think a lot of people that are, Oh, they went mad. It's uh, no, they probably didn't. They probably didn't. I think we're right. still reckoning with that. I think there's still a lot mm-hmm. of misunderstanding about just how pervasive that was. Mm-hmm. And that and, like, we're we're gonna have to have a long conversation about that real bloody and, scene. And more so I agree. women than I mean, yeah. I'm sure oh, there yeah. were plenty, yeah. there are plenty Specifically of Specifically women. Yeah, no, like yeah. Spe- like any any sign of resistance, oh, they're crazy, lock them up. Um yeah. Yeah. Melanie Laurent's last movie, The Mad Woman's yes. Ball. That like, film just showed so this off, and I just oh man, I need to watch that because I it's yeah, be right up my it's on um, it's on Prime. Prime. Yeah, okay, yeah, um, yeah. Angel at my table made me think about that quite a bit. Um, because I, I just finished a book. Uh, I, th- I think it's called The Woman Who Would Not Be Silenced, mm. and, and, and the idea of like just how many women, you know, if 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 they resisted the powers in their lives, like namely the men, but even sometimes their mothers or like their mothers-in-law, it's like, no, you're causing too much trouble. You are not well. We need to deal with this. And the, and the dealing with this just was so terribly violent. Um, And, and just, you know, just 
there's just just so many of these that that we we've completely forgotten about. Angel at my table definitely reminded me of that. Um, like as 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 Mariah was saying. Yeah, it's it's um, and I think it takes for the most part women talking about these things yeah. because yeah. Uh, the, mm-hmm. you know even even men who aren't actively participating in the silencing of women kind of do. Yeah. Even though they don't mean to, right. um, it's it's this is a, it's just really stunning film. And and Carrie Fox um, was one of those actresses that really was in a ton of interesting films in the '90s. And then today, unless you're a fan of one of those films, most people don't know who she is, which is a real bummer because she had like hit after hit, or at least you know not maybe not hit in terms of like box office, but like her her filmography as an actress in the '90s is one of the unparalleled runs. I think it was kind of crazy seeing her in this, like, like playing so awkward and uh, gawkish. Like, because my introduction to her was Shallow Grave, where she's just so much more assured. Yeah, she's so good in Shallow Grave. And I'm like, so when I was watching Angel at my table this time, I was kind of tilting my head, like, wait a second. It was was just (laughs) such. It's like, wait, I I remember you. What's going on here? She's also fantastic in Jillian Armstrong's Last Days of Shea New, which sometimes is on Netflix, but I don't I don't know um, if that ever got released really on, on DVD, but it's another... Oh, and in Bright Star, of course. Stunning one. Yeah. yeah. And The Dressmaker by um, Jocelyn Morehouse? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And side, n- side note, I think Jillian Armstrong next year, Mariah... She's fantastic. We, we got to do that. We got to do that episode because I'm so, so many- excited to watch her work so many good movies yeah for sure and yeah i uh i i shared my thoughts extensively before on the piano but i of course want to hear what both of you think of her most acclaimed breakthrough film that won her the academy award for best director and rightfully so uh it you know like i mentioned early on it 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 has a classical structure that is very lyrical and compassionate containing some of the best imagery that she's ever captured uh, it's one that I've seen many times and always find something new and exciting in it that I hadn't picked up on before. And it's obviously very sensual and erotic and beautiful and all those adjectives that we all know. Uh, but I did ramble on a lot about this one in the past. So I'll let the two of you sort of share your love. of. The I'm piano. super excited for the Criterion release that just came out. Um, I have oh, not picked yes. it up yet. I'm waiting for the sale, but because um, I have a gift card. But um, <laughs> the DVD that I have was such a terrible transfer, um, just ugly, horrible transfer. I can't even believe it got released like that. So I'm, I'm very excited for people to see how lush the cinematography is on this because it's, it's stunning. And if you only saw the DVD, you would have no idea how gorgeous it is. Um, but this is another one. Um, like I said, most of the women that I interviewed last year, I would say 40% of them became filmmakers because of the piano. Um, like, I think I think people kind of understand the importance of this film, but I really don't think people really know how many women saw this movie as a, as a girl or as a, as a teenager or as in their young 20s and said, I can make a movie now because of this movie. Um, more so, I think, than even Catherine Bigelow, I, I, the, at least from the women I've interviewed. Mm. Um, this is a landmark film for so many reasons. Uh, and, and every time you watch it, it's 
there it reveals like new layers because it's so dense. Exactly. Yeah. But it doesn't feel dense. It's not one of those movies where you watch it and you're like, ah, I've got to do homework now. Like it just it's so emotional. It washes over you. But every time you watch it, you're like, oh, well, I didn't notice that before. Oh, my God. I didn't notice that before. Right. Um, ugh, Stunning. The scale of this movie, I think, is what is like one of the amazing achievements of it. It just, you know, because I, I, I feel like there was this thought process in 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 the industry that was like you know if we're going to give somebody like jane campion a movie or if we're going to give somebody like Catherine bigelow a movie or agnes varda a movie you know we got to keep the budget down so let them tell let them tell the story of the woman peeling potatoes for 20 minutes you know like keep it in an apartment keep it in a square block yeah here's your here's your five million go make your movie seeing somebody like campion widen out the 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 scope of the film and taking in the whole shore and walking up the mountain and taking in the forest and just, you know, letting the rain pour down on us and tell one of these grand stories that boys have been able to tell for so long. It just, it hits you so much harder. It's like, Holy shit. This is just incredible. Why aren't there more of these? It's wild. It was made on a relatively small budget, seven seven million in the nineties, and it made a hundred and forty million dollars. I mean, and then Chris, she, it's so doable. It's like if you get still, somebody who's pragmatic, it's yeah. so and she, doable. She still had to fight to make the next yeah. few movies she wanted yeah. to make because that's nuts. Wow. They still didn't trust women. And like Mm-mm. this 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 woman showed you she could like what I don't even I can't even do the math there. It was like 15 times the budget or something. Yeah. And and you're still like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> you're like, just let her do whatever she wants. Ugh. 20 but, times um, the budget, actually. Times. It, was, it okay, cost yeah. them seven million dollars, which is like pocket change at Miramax yeah. at the time. And it made 140 mil. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. But what I love about this movie is it truly is one of the most erotic movies ever made. It is, it really, I think one one of you mentioned mentioned how how she's so good at passion. And this one is just, it's almost all Holly Hunter's face and body too, because she, she doesn't, um, she only speaks in voiceover, right? You only hear her thoughts. And I don't know how Holly Hunter did this. I don't, I mean, she won the Oscar. She deserved uh, because I don't know how she did this, uh, how she did just emoted so much. It must have been exhausting wearing all those costumes, too. And you, know doing that. Cr- you know what's crazy about this? Uh, this this movie really works on so many levels, like you said, but even just certain moments and gestures that you wouldn't expect to be erotic are like mm-hmm. just a tear in her stocking. I mean, obviously, that is meant to be, yes, like mm, something kinky is going on uh, and certainly in the mind of Harvey Keitel. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Not subtle, but just like little or even just, you know, Harvey Keitel polishing a piano naked. I'm like, that's pretty hot. (laughs) You know, just like little choices to include moments like that, that normally other directors may not think to include, I think gives this movie so much power in terms of its sensuality that I, every time I watch, I'm just like, wow, how did, how does she do this? <laughs> you know, and get away with it. I really don't know how she's so good at finding these moments. And it, part of it must be, she works, um, she worked with the same editor for a handful of her films. The editor is clearly 
able to help her find these moments, but she's the one that shoots them, right? So she shoots all these moments and then somehow and, it's and able often to cobble it together. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she cobbles it all together and you're like, how, what is your mind like? But I do think one thing that is apparent in Campion's films is that she didn't go to film school. She was a painter. She studied art and, right. yeah. and then came to film from there. And, and I think that, Certain filmmakers, I love them, but certain filmmakers root all of their films in other films. And what I think is so unique um, about Campion is she roots most of her her visual language in art. You and, can totally see that. Yeah, I, I, so, didn't, I didn't thank you for that. I did not know that. But the second you say that, I'm like, yeah. Well, same, same with David Lynch. David Lynch was an artist. Obviously, he mm-hmm. went to AFI, but he started out, um, his first degree is in, in art. And um, I, I think both of them have such a unique visual language because their art is rooted in in classical painting. Yeah. And in, ex, yeah. ex, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um expressionism express expressing themselves through yeah through through visual um language as opposed to expressing yourself through cinematic language and 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 i think you can tell when a filmmaker comes from from either all film or if they come from a different art practice and and i i think that's part of why i'm drawn even though i love film and i've seen a million films i like the filmmakers who i can tell they didn't just grow up in a video store (laughs) they've seen other things and they've got two films you're de palma who obviously just uh, binged on hitchcock constantly or yeah you know someone like tarantino who obviously worked in a video store but at the same time i think uh i i I go back to just even how you're mentioning the the visual language of something like the piano is there any director that shoots holding hands or caressing hands no anything with hands <laughs> better no. than Jane Campion no they no one does this is the, she she gets how erotic it is and she shoots it as erotic as it is and I feel like she must have been a hand holder um <laughs> as a as a when she was first dating or something so she really gets the the power um that comes from like an illicit hand touch Remind me to mention that when we get to Bright Star. Please, please remind yeah. me of that Lord, because I'm, yeah, I'm watching. I mean, so many illicit hand touches in that movie. Yeah. It's, it's lovely. Yeah, but I, I, I think the only thing I came across is just the portrayal of the Maori tribe uh, as being questionable. Yet I know she consulted with a lot of the members of that tribe. Yeah, I, I think that it's one of those like she did the best she could in terms of she is part of the problem. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like she, yeah. she, she, she comes was given, from colonizers. And, and she was given seven mil to do this on a budget that was like, you know, like really, really controlled. I'm sure if it, like mm-hmm. if somebody like her had her way, she would have been like, let's get some Maori actors in here because, you know, we can probably get them really easily and rather cheap. But I'm sure somebody at the studio was like, no, 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 you need some, you need some, like some, some, you need some pros. We we were already we're already giving you this much rope in a gamble. We can't go that that far. So I do want to believe that she asked. I don't think that she never asked. But yeah, mm-hmm. but he he she did also like Cliff Curtis got his yeah, start right. here, yeah. and and obviously he is one of the most well known Maori um, actors. I I do think that it's a combo of even if you're doing 
even if a lot of like well-meaning liberals today will film something and then someone from that actual community will be like, hmm, you're still a little gazy. And I don't know that she could ever remove that gaziness from it. Right. But I, I yeah. do think that you can see she's attempting to like the jump from the way that the indigenous people are, are shown here and then say like uh, Jennifer Kent's the nightingale you can see how much more freedom a filmmaker has and how much more awareness um, filmmakers who aren't of those people are. Same with Whale Rider. Like, I was going to say, see, yeah. You oh, can right. see the change. You can see the change in what is being allowed with government money and the way, you know, education in terms of just knowing how to not be gazy. <laughs> Mariah, did think, you ever, Mariah, did you ever see Waru? Um, I don't think so. That one's if anybody who's interested in seeing a Maori story, um, it's it's told by eight filmmakers, eight Maori women. Oh, uh, basically, oh. they take chapters of the same uh, death ceremony and they tell like basically twenty minutes of the story at a time. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's an incredible it's an incredible film. It's an incredible um, piece of representation. Um, that's that's just it's so rare. What's that called again? Waru W A R U. Okay. There's also um, a lovely documentary called Marita, How Mum Decolonized the Screen. It's about uh, a woman who was attempting to change change the way that Indigenous, um, I think Australians actually, but maybe so, uh, New Zealand. No, it was New Zealand, um, were portrayed through documentaries. Mm. Um, and obviously she had a lot of, there was a lot of resistance to the kind of film she made. But um, definitely, if we're talking about present representation, it's a wonderful film. I think it's on Netflix. Um, and her son made it to sort of make sure her oh. legacy of pushing for actual representation of their um, culture being captured on screen before they were all systematically killed um, is <laughs> really <laughs> powerful. Yeah, and obviously, this entire cast is is is, is pretty spectacular and everything including little Anna Paquin <laughs> I'm just like oh my gosh she really knocked it out of the park in you know her first I, role. I interviewed her um during the Irishman and I asked her about this film and she basically was like she went with a friend to the open call because she was bored <laughs> oh wow <laughs> and then and then they cast her and she was like oh, it'll be fun and then she she won an Oscar she's got a whole and career out of it obviously That's found amazing. her calling um, but she wasn't like, she didn't grow up being like, I want to be an actress. She was just, you know, doing what kids do. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. And and it's, it's just funny too. Anytime I, I, I think I've seen in the mouth of madness too many times. Cause I always just picture Sam Neill yelling, this is not reality. And so whenever he, he yells in a movie, I kind of laugh and snicker a bit, but, uh, yeah, you know, like his work in that, um, Zhilovsky film possession yeah i just saw that for the first time last year and i was like wow he went from um my brilliant career to that and i'm like How, what the range the range <laughs> kidding, right yeah yeah no and, and, and then and then doing uh the piano and jurassic park jurassic in the, park same, in the year. same year yeah in the same that's year, amazing like, Dang. he can do anything right. Mariah, I remember when we talked about Power of the Dog, you were talking about how this film is an incredible example of like looking at the two men and their relationship with um with with Ada in in this movie and like kind of their different approach to to their relationship and want. 
Yeah. Yeah. I can't exactly remember what I said (laughs) on that podcast, but I, I definitely feel like it's two different kind of two different kinds of men in terms of seeing women still as property and seeing women as, as a partner and as, as an equal. And I think Ada is somebody who already knew that she had could find an equal and she did that. And that's why she has this, this child out of, out of wedlock and the man turned out to be shit and left her and everything, but spoilers. But I think she's somebody (laughs) who is strong enough in her personhood that she's looking for more and, you know, her father sells her, which is, of course, she ends up with another man who sees her as property, just like her father did. And I think, I think finding somebody like Kaitel's character who, who actually respects women and sees women as, as human throws her for a really big loop. And, and I, I do think that there are still, we, we want to be like, oh, that was a hundred years ago. Men don't think that way. I think, I think a lot of men still see women that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it's, it's, it, that's why it still feels so, um, almost righteous to see these men who see women as property portrayed, because I think we, we try to pretend that men don't think that way still, but they do. It should be like the first date question. Would you haul a piano off the beach for me? Yeah. <laughs> Cause that, you know? that's really what it comes down to. One of them is like, no, fuck it. We're leaving it. The other one is like, no, I can get this up there. It's good. Yeah, uh, I'll, fi- I'll it. figure it out. And at the end of the, it's like, that's, that's, you know, a big like, reason why I, he endeared himself to her. I read a lot of those um, Reddit, am I the asshole posts? Yeah, me too. All the time. It's fascinating how most of the time, if it's a married, like a a straight cis married couple, most of the time it's a woman asking, am I the asshole? Because I I want some autonomy from my husband, (laughs) you know, or flip a husband saying, am I the asshole? Because my wife is doing something that shows she's a human of her own (laughs) volition or whatever. And I was just like, how are these people still out in this world? They don't read books. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's rough. Um, I like to read those because it keeps me grounded that I have surrounded Same. myself with really nice people. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> oh, know? yeah, exactly. But I, I know I read a couple of criticisms that they didn't buy the growing attraction basically because Harvey Keitel is Baines is committing some sort of you know, blackmail, sexual assault kind of scenario, in, at least in the beginning. And I, I completely buy that she desires him equally. It's reciprocated. It's sort he of got slowly. the piano off the beach. Exactly. That's yeah. all it takes. It's like, they, well, I mean, that's a big thing. It's like, this was obviously clearly important to her. The man who she's supposed to be spending her life with is like, fuck it. It's staying. Right. Another man is like, I got this. You are going like you're like, here's a person who understands the importance of this thing to this other person. Th- that kind of recognition is reciprocated. It's not rocket science. It's like, seriously, see what is important to a person and and celebrate it with them. If not, you know, like the, the gesture we can get into a whole other thing of maybe they're white knighting or whatnot. But I, it's really at the end of the day, it's one of them said, leave it. One of them said, I can take it. And the the importance was recognized. And he also wants Ada to desire him rather than just be coerced into affection, too. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't hurt. And I do think that calling it coercion coercion and saying it's sexual assault sort of um, misses what 
I think the give and take in any sexual situation in real life, there's always a little, there's always a little bit of a game there. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the line is finding out like, is it actually manipulation or is it just sure. the, yeah. the give and take of two people becoming one person, not to quote yeah. the Spice Girls, but um, <laughs> I had to quote the Spice Girls there. Sorry. Um, I, I do think that there's, there's always a little bit, I mean, that's the whole reason that there is, the language around sexuality is tops and bottoms and, and doms and submissives and things like that. It's like, that's just sort of how it's a conversation. And there's always a slightly more dominant person in a conversation. What, how you find out if you're in a, a, a equally fulfilling sexual relationship is if it's the give and take is there. Right. And mm-hmm. I do think that this relationship has a give and a take. It's not all take from, from George and it's not all give right. from Ada. There's a m- yeah. mixture there. And yeah, and but you have to get through the whole movie to see that, especially once you get to the end and you see they finally hit a place where they are like giving and taking, but combined together, you know, and I, you know, that's my take. <laughs> I, I agree with that way more than sort of dismissing it the way I, I read a couple of people do. And I'm like, that's nah, it's kind of a limited yeah. way to look at it, really. But I mean, that's- for me. I, I responded to this movie like even early on when I first saw it is just the, the simple fact that, I, you know, again, I was a little shy and introverted and the way I did make connections with other people was through music and playing the mm. piano or the guitar. And that's kind of how I socialized and made friends. And so even just on that base level, I was kind of like, oh, I really, I really respond to, you know, just that fact that she finds her voice and uses it through through playing the piano and you know that poor piano was for a while was just stuck on this beach you know and she was sort of stuck in this unfathomable situation and she was mute and she couldn't express herself but at the same time when she was able to play the piano suddenly she felt connected suddenly she's smiling again you know and she's having an interpersonal connection with another human being and the piano is sort of the the catalyst for that as well and i just i, mean, the, I, I dig that 100% the three of us are all writers we can certainly you know latch on to the the happiness you feel when somebody wants to read something you wrote when somebody takes an interest in something you create or you are interested in it it endears you to them in such a profound way Oh, it yeah. really does. It, it's it's that connection, not just physically, because yeah. they clearly feel that, but intellectually. Yeah. Thank you for and, listening. And, Thank you for reading. Yeah, and I think they, I think they find that in each other. Totally. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. No. Definitely. And yeah, emotional intelligence is something that I think is one of Campion's strengths. Yes. Throughout all of her work. However. Portrait of a Lady is a film I've seen twice now, and I still can't connect with it. And oh I my god, I love it I feel bad. so much! I, so bad. I love it so much. No, it's so I, wild. I need <laughs> to share. I need to share a really, really quick story. I got to catch a screening of this at the at the Lightbox, not far from oh. my apartment here in Toronto. And I I offered my wife Lindsay the opportunity if she wants to come with me or not. She she declined. And when I came home, I was like. I feel like I just cheated on you. Like there was just so many corsets <laughs> in this movie and fevered looks and misinterpreted words. She's like, yeah, I Googled that after you left and I immediately regretted not going with you. I was like, so why didn't you come? She goes, I thought you were going to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire again. She's like, she, she's like, I'm, I'm like, why did you think that? She, I, do you think I just like dropped the words at the end? She's like, yeah, you do that. I was like, oh, I do. So <laughs> I, uh, 
I got that's hilarious. hilarious. Big screen alone. Uh, it was magical. Um, I, I enjoyed, I'm happy I saw it now. Cause if I actually, if I had seen this when it dropped in 96, I wouldn't have been ready for it. This like hit me right at the right time for this kind of story. Yeah. I wasn't ready for it when I first saw it. And I, I I'm pretty sure I'd seen the piano and was actually looking forward to it. Uh, and certainly seeing that cast, I was kind of like, whoa, I, I'm, and, and, you know, people like Viggo Mortensen show up in this now and you kind of go, wow, look at, look at all these people that, you know, Christian Bale shows up in a small part for crying out loud, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. The credits, it's, the credits start rolling and you're like, what, what, yeah. what? Yeah. It just, it just <laughs> keeps on going. No, but for me, it's kind of one of those outside looking in experiences for me. I mean, I, I love Barbara Hershey in this and, and Martin Donovan, who is just, you know, I'm going to mention this later, but a lot like Paul Schneider is kind of one of those actors who doesn't get the kind of, of a claim. I think, you know, they both deserve, and this is probably my favorite Martin Donovan performance. I think, I mean, yes, obviously his work with Hal Hartley is amazing, but I do love the score. And again, and I say this a lot, but the attention to detail is, is really perfect throughout. I don't know. And you know, Mariah, you'll probably disagree. I, I, I don't know if I like the casting of Malkovich here. Oh uh, no, he's perfect. He's perfect. He's I just feel only, I, he's I the see only Malkovich. <laughs> that is the, the best acting with a parasol I have ever seen. Only, <laughs> he's the only actor I can think of who is this weird combination of incredibly erotic and incredibly off-putting mm. at the yeah. same time. And I, I mean, I'm, Obviously, I like fell for him really hard when I was like nine, which tells you a lot about my taste in men. <laughs> but I just he's both he's both alluring and repulsive at the same time. And I think I think it's perfect because the the film is about this woman who is so hellbent on on being her own person, on being free. And, and she has the money to be free. And she meets this person that just like all the other men kind of she can resist them. She sees their charms, but she's, she knows they'll take away her freedom, right? Sure. She meets this one man, and she just he's just so alluring that she keeps ignoring all the red flags. And you have to cast somebody who has who can do that, who can make you feel that. And I feel I, I every the parasol, yes, the, the way he is with that, <laughs> the way his voice is like butter. It's like I I would you put me in a room with Malkovich, and I'd be like, you know what, I give up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i could change I just, like, him i, I got it I yeah feel it. <laughs> i just see the same kind of i mean I, I i still see like just kind of like a a different take on the manipulator he played in you know in dangerous liaisons more or it's, less it's similar yeah, but i mean and? i think they're similar characters <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no that's true i mean i guess it's kind of perfect casting when you put it that way but i think at the same time i was like i wonder what it would be like to for somebody i i almost want to say that she said maybe william hurt was going to play that role and i don't know if that would have been better i don't See, think I, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't buy william hurt as much he's he's good in jane Eyre, his version of rochester All mostly right. because he's he's more repulsive than charming he lets mm-hmm. he turns the charm on occasionally i think with this character, you have to be both at the same time. I, I don't know that Hurt can do both at the same time. He can kind of do oscillate between the two. Yeah, but there's there's really great 
moments throughout the movie in that sort of like Dolly-esque black and white silent short in the middle of this film to sort of evoke that grand tour that she's going on is stunning. I love that so much. Uh, kind of, kind of reminds me of Guy Madden a little bit. The kind of stuff that he does, and obviously yeah, pays homage it does, to. It does have that kind of Guy Madden feel to it. Yeah, um, and there's definitely earned emotion, especially, you know, obviously the the scene late in the film towards the end between Donovan and, and Kidman. Uh, you know, as as he's dying, I'm kind of like, good lord, that's that's some of the more sublime and sad things we get. You know, and that she would later even do even more strongly in something like Bright Star. But yeah, no, I, I, I don't dislike the movie. I'm. It's more of like a. I'm in the middle on it. Like there are things I love. I just don't get emotionally invested as strongly as I would hope. Based on my response. It? Oh, I watched it a week ago. You watched it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. It's one of those ones. I feel like it grows the the more you come back to it. So maybe the third viewing, yeah, it'll there go, go up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's possible. And I I mean, yeah, I love the, the line Donovan says late in the film with pain is deep, but it passes and the love remains. I mean, come on, that's that's my shit. <laughs> Saying <laughs> things like that is just, yeah, it's it has moments where I'm totally intoxicated by it, but not the whole experience. And I feel bad because I want to love everything, <laughs> but maybe it'll, ha- no, maybe it will happen with subsequent views. Like, this one isn't as readily available, right? Like, is no, this was yeah, this is the I only think, one I uh, couldn't get back to for this for this show. I think like, uh, Shout Factory put it out on Blu-ray about ten years ago, but that's mm. really hard to find now. Um, and also, like an old school Blu-ray, so it's not even that great of a master. Um, it's definitely one that I, I keep hoping will get rediscovered and reassessed. The way, if you're listening, yeah, the way that in the cut was because it's it's definitely far more um heady than some of her other films which is another reason i really like it is it's definitely like more on an intellectual level than even the piano is i remember this was the first film where there were actually expectations um like across the board it's like we got the director of the piano working with nicole kidman and there's john malkovich and it's miramax again and it's going to have an oscar push behind it and just kind of like there's there's that show yeah, they dropped this, it had, in, this had in oscar december bucks. like yeah yeah, yeah. and this they, they clearly wanted this to be something that would get oscar attention and it just didn't latch for you know for whatever reasons in 96 it was kind of a clear runway in that year it was kind of the year that uh, the oscar kind of really turned to the independence with, with the stuff like fargo and english and patients and that kind the, of thing the woman who wrote the screenplay has mostly written films that have been misunderstood um hmm. she also she wrote high tide which is one of jillian armstrong's great films with like fantastic judy davis performance but another one that is a quote-unquote difficult woman and and it got dismissed when it was released she wrote an angel at my table um, oh and she wrote oscar lucinda which i she wrote yeah. oscar lucinda she wrote a thousand acres like she's Possession, mostly she did angela's ashes too yeah she's other i think angela's ashes and possession are the only two where a man directed her films. So who mm-hmm. I, I I liked possession. I haven't seen Angela's ashes, but she's definitely someone who um, gravitates towards quote unquote, difficult women mm-hmm. and mostly works with filmmakers who thrive in presenting difficult women. And, and I think what's, what's interesting about that as a collaboration is that they root themselves in 
a kind of presentation of womanhood that isn't necessarily palatable and isn't necessarily what people uh, are used to. And so even, even if you have watched Armstrong's films or Campion's films, there's, they still push past what they've already shown you and ask you to even go even further in to that space. And, and I like that there, that she was able to make so many of these movies. Um, She sort of obviously stopped for the last few years, which is a bummer, but she has a really interesting filmography. Yeah. And so I guess we'll move forward to Holy Smoke and uh, Holy Smoke. Do I adore Kate Winslet? Uh, I, I, I think she's the, the main thing I love about this movie is her performance. Cause you know, it's, it's something we hadn't seen from her. I don't believe uh, up until this point, just in terms of the layers and the, the many things that the dimension that she brings to this character. But at the same time, I, as someone who has like this avid interest in stories about cults and deprogramming and how people get manipulated, it, it's another film that I, I wish I felt more strongly about in the end. Uh, maybe it's just because the tones kind of clash a little bit here for me in terms of the comedic touches and stuff like that. I mean, it does sort of harken back, like I mentioned earlier, to the sense of humor surrounding sort of family dynamics and internal conflict that we got with something like Sweetie. But I'm just not sure if the tones here mesh quite as yeah, well. I, I think this is the only sort of misfire for me in all of all of Campions. And and even as a misfire, I love it. But sure, it, it sure. definitely, I think it was a really big swing. And I don't think it all lands. Yeah. But what does land is great. Like their performances are great. Kaitel in a, a dress is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Kaitel when he's introduced. And lipstick. Yeah. Yeah. Kaitel when he's introduced with the in the airport with those boots. Uh, like Neil yeah. Diamond needle drop. I'm yeah, there. and I'm and I it. mean the one thing I will 100% say about Campion is she understands how hot Kaitel is more than any other filmmaker. Um, mm. She really captures what is so sensuous about him because um, he's a short king, you know. And I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of short men don't get their they don't get their their dues. And she's like, no, this is a hot man, and we're gonna we're gonna appreciate this. And I so I really like that about this film and piano but this more so i think this is the hottest he's probably ever been um but i do think that some of the stuff they're trying to do with the the new age sort of themes don't quite land Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and why pass why cast pam greer if you're not going to use her yeah (laughs) that really disappoints me and to some degree because like she's coming off of jackie brown and stuff like that and i'm kind of like ah she's just not really there (laughs) but i know it's not her story either so it really like there's there's just some things that don't quite work in this movie but it's definitely one i want to watch again because um like brian said about portrait of a lady that one has grown on me every time i rewatch it so Mm -hmm. it's been about five or six years since i've seen this one so it's definitely one i feel like i need to it's another one that's harder to find, too. I need to give another. We had it on Filmstruck for a while. I should have rewatched it because I made a bunch of gifts of Harvey Keitel in a dress. Uh, <laughs> you can find those on the Internet for sure. Yeah. Ryan, what did you think of Holy Smoke? This was the first time I saw Holy Smoke. I think of her entire filmography. This was the first one that I was seeing for the first time for this show. Um, I mean, it's, it's very 1999. It, it's very, yeah, very totally. much... You know, Hollywood is starting to try the weird stuff um, and and 
Sundance is kind of like more and more taking over with every year. Um, it's it's interesting, like again, in terms of careers to watch Kate Winslet, like really peel away from the corsets and bonnets and and the Titanicness of her early career and start to do some weirder, like to kind of get back to the early Australian and New Zealand stuff that she was doing at the beginning of her career. Um, it's, I was really taken in by the whole deprogramming of a cult thing. I, I think I must have read a book that that was talking about that recently mm-hmm. um, because that's that's a thing. Again, that like kind of like what we we're talking about with the with the not reckoning with how many women have been sent into um, insane asylums and, and mental health centers. Um, it's a thing that we haven't really reckoned with is how many cults were built up by men who basically like basically built themselves a harem you know, in the name, in the name of enlightenment and just how often this has happened um, in the name of so-called enlightenment and what it takes to um, not undo that, but what, what it takes to reverse that effect. You know, I I look at something like this and I I look at something like Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, which just did it so much better. Oh yeah. yeah. No kidding. Yeah. You know, so which there's, there's thing I would like to combine the two. I'd like to put like things of this into that movie. Um, so it's, you know, yeah, it's messy. It's not something that like, if I was programming a, a Jane Campion retrospective, this wouldn't exactly be opening night, but there are, there are a lot of things in it that I like not to mention the push pull late in this movie of Harvey Keitel in a dress and Kate Winslet basically just trying to see how far she can push up. Yeah, and I I do think sort of there's a little bit of voyeurism in the way that she presents the cult because Mm -hmm. it is in India that I think is very specific to actually the Australian um, New Zealand experience. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of because it's so close, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of this happening during the New Age moment where wayward girls would run off to India and. Um, I think she's trying to look at both the danger of that, but also the fact that all these w- girls were looking for something. And I don't think that that lands no. quite yeah. as, as deeply. Like it's definitely trying to show why they are, they fall prey to this and why they look at, we're looking for escapes. But I, I think, I think it needed like to balance that a little stronger. I mean, yeah. oddly, Oddly enough, you could do it without India. Like oddly enough, you mm-hmm. can you can totally do this with here is this charismatic person who who lives remotely. Yeah, you know, and then the exoticism would uh, yeah, yeah, be there. Then, yeah, exactly. Because I think that's that's some of the stuff. Like they definitely she uses some um she uses some ah sorry. <laughs> My phone just <laughs> rang. Um she uses some uh Hold on. What was I saying? My, I'm sorry. The, my, my, she uses some pet food, my pet she food just, some um, <laughs> Miss Fanny's tuna is here uh, and I couldn't get it to hang up. Oh, she uses some um, very exoticized imagery of uh, Hindu goddesses and gods yeah. in a way that yeah. is very nineties, very new agey. Yeah. It doesn't I mean, even, stuff even doesn't that age. Yeah, wow. even that shot late in the late in the film where she sees like she thinks she sees the um, the mirage and it turns out to be like the three people of her family splitting off. Like it, I don't think yeah. you, you probably wouldn't have that quite as much these days. It doesn't it hasn't it's the one aspect of the film that just really doesn't age 
no. hasn't aged well. Yeah. And but was uh, very of its time. So oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? In the cut. Let's cut. Cuts. Yes. This is another title I did review kind of extensively on the last episode. But I think again, with with more rewatches, it's only growing higher and higher in my mind as another remarkable work of art. You know, I mean I I guess the the only critique I had when I first saw it was just like, yeah, it sort of slips a little bit into the serial killer genre convention towards the end with like, Oh, let's reveal the killer and all that stuff. But that that doesn't bother me now. It doesn't at all. I, I, there's no denying the power of that final shot. Uh, And this movie is just red hot and sort of like doused and just this interesting imagery that I don't think we'd ever seen before because the the sort of like hazy uh, lens framing here and there, like so, because sometimes things are so out of focus, except for what's in the middle of the frame. That's really a, a nice touch that I don't think we've seen before in any of her work. And yet, it's also doused in like the trauma of nine eleven and just the mm-hmm. dangers of predatory men, and it, and it plays like a fever dream. It, it, it's like a fever dream of desire and fear. This is almost, it, it could be a David Lynch movie. I think <laughs> Just yeah, it's, it, it's definitely the closest Venn diagram between these two filmmakers. And you can absolutely see why I love them both. <laughs> yeah, in this movie. Totally. Yes. If this movie was made by Brian De Palma, it would be, a, it would be like hailed as a classic. Yeah. And except that he positive. could not, he could not make this movie. Like, no, he could take he could make this story, but it would be very, very, no, very different. Exactly. And in terms of its presentation. What's what's kind of depressing in terms of its reception is if if you're the kind of film goer who you're like, oh, I just heard of this movie, I'm gonna go check Rotten Tomatoes, which is a lot of how people assess yeah. um yeah. how to dig through just the vast amount of films that are available to people right now, mm-hmm. you would see that it's at 33% and you might stop, right? But if you were to go to, say, its Wikipedia page and look at the reception section, half of it is how it was received at the time. And half of it is like this reappraisal. And you realize this is one of those movies that truly shows the bias of where film criticism was when there were when it was 90 percent men. Right. And because most of there were a few women who saw it and were like, hey, actually, this is doing some interesting things. And there were a few men who got it. But for the most part, the men were like, what is this? I don't get it. And in the, in the retrospective, you have mostly millennial women coming in and saying, like, this is amazing. This is doing all kinds of things. It's, it's taking a genre and subverting it, but still appreciating what makes the genre the genre. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's just I remember being really hesitant to watch it because of its reception and and then I saw it and I was like, what the hell movie did these guys see? Yeah, that was, <laughs> like, that was my, that was totally my reaction coming out, like coming out of TIFF. I was like, did I have my festival goggles on? Because I feel like I enjoyed that way more 
than a lot of other people were like given it. I was like, listen, I can understand how this is not somebody's thing. I don't understand the hatred for it. And, and part of what's fascinating about the way that she subverts some of these tropes is that the women who the women are still murdered in disgusting ways, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but you're put directly in the perception of these women and of the women around the the women that are being murdered in a way that um, a lot of these films don't do. It also um, would make a really interesting double feature with um, um, looking for Mr. Goodbar, which, Ooh. which has as similar, I think, that's another film I, I, I watched the first time last year. And I actually do think it's much better than its reception it's another um, because I don't, too. I don't think yeah. that it's as misogynistic as people claim it is. I think it's being really honest about the dangers of casual dating, um, <laughs> frankly. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's also sort of a metaphor for the end of, of, of the quote unquote sixties, even though it was the seventies when it was made, but um, both movies really show, the the danger that women put themselves in in being as sexually adventurous as men because women for the most part don't murder men it's men who murder women right yeah. <laughs> and and you have to you have to be much more trusting as a woman to let men in as a as a as a straight cis woman who and for some frankly as a trans woman too trans women obviously have to be super trusting and that's why they are the most murdered um it's it this movie makes makes I think makes people uncomfortable because it shows that. But then it also makes people uncomfortable because it shows how voracious women are sexually. And that's just they're supposed to be objects. They're not supposed to be the hunter. Yeah, I'm yes. sure a lot of men saw this and like does not compute. Nope. No, because it because it puts us into it puts us into Franny's seat and makes us understand like how she is seen like every time the every time one of the guys looks at her whether it's mark ruffalo or whether it's her student or whether it's ruffalo's partner or whoever any of the guys like it goes out of its way to put the camera in her seat and it's like Mm -hmm. here's how the here's how the man is looking at this person now how do you feel like do you feel unsafe well yeah welcome you know it's it it go it so specifically goes out of its way to put the camera in her chair. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why it succeeds. Yes, yeah. I agree with that. I think, and I'm, but one of the reasons why I think it made a lot of people who weren't used to this uncomfortable. Because oh, sure. it, it makes you, because you're not used to being looked at that way. And it, exactly. it makes you feel yeah. the consumption. Yeah. 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 And all the mentioned counters just, they possess this hint of danger and they set off these red flags. Like there's, there's an unhinged, I believe uncredited Kevin Bacon. Who's just, yeah. Oh man. Just a weirdo. Such a weirdo. The thing that's so great about that thing is that I feel like that was a secret among Hmm. women, right? That, 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 cause you, you watch it now, right? You see, you see conversations about um, just conversations that women have with men on, on apps where they go from wanting to be in your pants to calling you a dumb bitch in like 30 seconds. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and people, people see that escalation now and people understand the escalation now. And they think it's a, I think they still maybe think that that's unique to the app age or dating online age. And it's absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. Men have always gone from zero 
to to 10 and um, women weren't able to tell those stories women weren't believed when they told those stories women were murdered (laughs) you know and and what's interesting is she shows all the different kind of men that might have hurt her and all the different kind of men that she has to navigate their escalation and feelings so that they don't hurt her and and you know it goes to that whole women can't lead because they're too emotional. And it's like, no, actually (laughs) it's men that are too emotional. That's why they more crimes of passion are committed by men than anybody. Um, And it dares the audience to think about that and to think about all the ways that women navigate male anger and male, like predatory male desire over and over and over. And, and you can't, if you're, if you're also attracted to men, you have to find a way to be comfortable with that, you know, it's, yeah. it's very, it's a, it's such a balance and, and she does it so well in this. Yeah. And, and she, um, she finds that balance too, even with, with the sex scenes, you know, cause they're kind of exquisite and just focusing so intently on her pleasure and it makes yeah. it makes that all the more meaningful. And, and, and certainly she captures the kind of closeness that, these two sisters have the love they have Mm -hmm. for each other. That sort of intimacy is also something we don't normally see just like, you know, how they're holding one another and, and it's, it's just, and it makes the unfortunate spoiler alert uh, death of, of Jennifer Jason Lee in this all the more powerful and sad and just knowing the kind of closeness they, those two sisters shared together. It's, it's really like a mixture of, of, all kinds of things she's she's done throughout her career yeah. through the through the lens of of a psycho like a psychosexual erotic drama a thriller and it, it's I think the most brilliant use of her themes. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that it's the only film that she ever shot in America. It's her second. Yeah. Hmm. It's her second American story now with the power of the dog. But it's the only. It's the only film she ever shot outside of. Australia, New Zealand, or, um, you know, like she's working in England and um, Italy for, um, for a portrait of a lady. Uh, but this one was, this one was 100% in New York city, um, which it's, you know, it's like, it's just one of those things of getting her just a little bit outside of herself and what she, what she brings, like, you know, cause you're, you're going to be comfortable in the studios you shoot in and the locations you shoot in. If there's something a little bit more, your lane it's part of the reason why like you know you hear about like the new york directors shoot new york a little bit better and the la directors shoot la a little bit better um mariah and i have somewhere in the annals of my uh, podcasting uh canon have a long conversation about la being shot and how how yeah. you know what you oh, gotta right. look for um i think we were talking because we were talking about drive um oh yeah but it's interesting to see her approach New York as the setting mm-hmm. for her story as, as the, the, you know, the, the, the ground for her story and how she, she shoots it. She doesn't, she, you know, she shoots it in a very, very work a day manner. She doesn't kind of get outside of it and go to those aside from, aside from the bridge, she doesn't get outside of it and kind of go to those more flowery locations. She stays in much more working class um, New York um, and, and uses that for the setting and captures it in such an interesting way. Yeah. It's definitely um, kind of the way she uses New York. She highlights the danger side of it. Whereas, Mm. you know, like we were talking about after hours earlier, like everything that that character goes through in New York is 
like me as a, as a country bumpkin, I'm like, what is he doing? Why is he in these places alone? This no is kidding. terrifying. And he's just a New Yorker and it's fine. And it, it's not really shot in a, like, this is dangerous. Even taxi driver showing the like worst aspects of Times Square isn't, he's like luxuriating in it. He's not saying like, this is dangerous. Yeah. And, and I think she uses New York as a, as, as a visitor and shows, you know, like Franny doesn't see the danger. No. But Campion seems the danger and she shoots it so that sh- you as the viewer see the danger that Franny's in, even when Franny doesn't. And yeah, I think that's, that's why I feel really so, interesting. That's why I feel so anxious watching this whole movie. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You know? Like when she goes down to the basement at the beginning, like that's just mm. New Yorkers just do that. Yeah. And that's, I'm like, where's the where's the bathroom? Oh, it's down that dark oh, stairway. Yeah, in the back. That's fine. And I'm like, don't go <laughs> All down. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm 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 so glad people are reappraising this movie because it's 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 really remarkable and it shouldn't have been it was unfairly maligned and dismissed upon its initial release and I still I, I even when I saw it ten years ago I saw something special in it. I keep uh, hoping this will be one that um, Criterion rescues. I have I, I like have the will. DVD and I it mean, has an audio commentary, so there's at least the DVD is decent. In terms of of camping and getting to talk about what she was doing with this film, but there just needs to be so much more. I see it coming. I, I totally see this coming. I really hope so. Yeah, and you should do the audio commentary, Mariah. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yes, I would love that. And you should also do the audio commentary for this next film, of course, because ah. I, I I mean I'm I'm definitely gonna let you sing the praises of this masterpiece, but. Let me just say I was not going into this episode thinking it would end up becoming my favorite Jane Campion film, hmm. uh, but it is. And there's just not a single moment. There's not a single frame I would change. It's it's this warm exploration of the sensation of being in love. And when it starts with that needle going into the thread and then later in the film, you know, Keats actually says to, to Fanny that we must cut the threads and mm-hmm. just like little things that connect Visually or through dialogue, uh, nearly every line spoken, every gesture, every hand being held, like I mentioned, and even just the simplicity of the score and that harpsichord. I, I it reminded me, it's they're di- very different movies, obviously, but when I first saw Phantom Thread, I actually, I actually felt the dopamine in my brain rising and getting goosebumps because I'm like, this is just connecting with me in terms of ways I hadn't expected because I'm not like the biggest period piece fan in general. And then suddenly a movie like this or Phantom Thread comes my way. And I'm like, I just want to give this movie a big hug. I, I, I love everything <laughs> about it. Uh, and it, it surprised me. I mean, I do love poetry and I've certainly read some Keats and, and things like that, but I, I guess I hadn't anticipated just how strongly I felt I would feel about all three performances here. Uh, as I mentioned, I think I even tweeted this out that uh, Paul Schneider really deserves a lot more recognition for what he does in this film. Um, the, 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 the relationship that, that they, uh, that Mr. Brown and, and John Keats have together. I don't, I don't know. I, I was sensing a little codependency similar okay. to, yeah. to can, Phil can and his I, brother. I need to ask this. I don't know if it's just where my head is at in how I am viewing films these days or what Mariah Gates Keats and Brown were they strictly writing partners? Because his 
I think it's unclear both historically yeah. and okay. in the film. Because that I, would make actually, so much more sense. I haven't if read that the biography. What, okay. If that's so, what's happening, I, like so much more is clear. I'm like, either he is in love and feeling threatened and jilted, or he is just a supreme dick and also jilted and threatened. Um, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like I understand. I understand and empathize with the one. The other, I'm just like, what the holy shit? Just especially late on, I'm like, I am just totally picking up vibes here. And this really feels like Brown at least saw Keats more than just a friend and writing associate. Yeah, I do think that there is, um, at least in the wake of this film, there was definitely a lot of academics who came out of the work and said that there is thoughts that perhaps they were more than just, you know, roommates. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and frankly, I think um, the history of bisexuality in particular is completely, is st- I mean, People being, bisexual, people being bisexual today is is half still the time people are still yeah. don't believe <laughs> that you're queer if you say you're bisexual. And I I do think what she shows so strongly is that you, sexuality is a spectrum and passion is a spectrum and you don't know who you're going to who you're going to connect with. And right. I, I think Keats was such an open nerve of a person that he drew deep connections out of people. And, and you see what's so great is you see how deeply both Fanny Braun and uh, Mr. Brown fall for him. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's tension between Braun and Brown. And that's why at the end, you know, the, the scenes with the two of them, there's two different scenes at the end after, you know, Keats heads off to Italy where you see them not as a lover and a friend, but as two lovers, you've lost something. Right. And, and it's it's beautiful. And uh, but she doesn't have to spell it out either, which I think is yeah, why she's I mean, such a strong filmmaker. Exactly. The thing too is like I, I I want to believe in my heart of hearts that men are capable of this kind of friendship. Like I think it's it's our great failing as as a species that we can't open ourselves up to like platonic actual affection, you know, and that women have it so much more over us that they can. Mm-hmm. The only problem is that I feel like a per, a man who was that evolved, who had that kind of um, streak running through him, wouldn't be so threatened and wouldn't be so much of a dick to Fanny Braun. So I can't marry the two. Yeah, I, I, I do think that she's implying that a bit. Yeah. Um, but I think that what's brilliant about the way she implies it is it can read both it can read both yeah. ways yeah. equally yeah. like and to one extent um their huge connection is an intellectual one yeah yeah and it, and he's threatened by similarly intellectual connection between Braun and keats mm-hmm. and and so it has it's it's a deeply layered film oh yeah while yeah. also being just the most emotional thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> oh, <I> know. <laughs> you know, I, like, I, when she breaks down in front of the stairs, I am just so uh, on. It's unreal. It really it's, is. It's so good. I don't know how she got to that place as an actress, but um, I'm glad that she did. It's so intense. It and funny. again, why, why, watching, well, I mean, watching this, I was, I was wondering why I'm not, it's it's not a movie that I can quote chapter and verse by 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 a long stretch. And while I do have I do though have like a weird recall for imagery, so I'm like, 
why do I know this shot? Why do I know this shot? Why do I know this shot? I'm like, Mariah has used this as a banner over the year. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, this was from Mariah's over avatar when I first met her. I'm like, just all these shots it's, in this movie. It's I'm still, like, Mariah um, Gates is it's probably still your banner, right? It's it's been my it's been my banner on Tumblr since I saw this movie. There we go. In yeah. 2010, so yeah. it's yeah. been there so for 12 years. I'm like, yeah. why do I have a recall That's for this it. movie that I've seen on three Tumblr, times? Yeah. I'm like, it's Mariah Gates' influence. It's yeah, it's one of those movies. I'm very proud that dozens Rightfully of people, so. dozens yep. of people, when they see any image from it, they're like, I gotta tell Mariah <laughs> that yeah. I saw a shot from this on someone else's Twitter. Like, I yes, great. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> even thought I even thought of Malik a little bit because the way it plays w- with certain shots and oh yeah, it, the the just the feelings and the memories you have of falling in love or when you lose it just felt so real to me throughout every single frame of this movie. I, un- I unfortunately saw this movie in the throes of of breaking up with the first person I was ever in love with. Mm. So I was in a really dark place and I was like, damn it, why is this exactly right? Like it had yeah. it had the whole feeling of it. Um the part where she um they're exchanging letters because he's oh, gone yeah. off mm-hmm. and she's like when I don't hear from it, when I don't hear from it, it feels like I've died. Like, dang, (laughs) it's right. Like, yes, that is right. That is how it feels. There's an emptiness and then a connection. And it's, I don't know. I don't know how she did. She did this. It's brilliant. Yeah. And like we mentioned earlier, it's incredibly erotic without having sex scenes, you know? Yes. And, and just the way two people look at one another and, and yet it, it never sort of becomes, you know, maudlin or sentimental in ways that you'd think like a conventional sort of love story would be. It, it's, it's just the right balance of everything for me. I mean, you know, like he even says at one point, well, if, if poetry does not come as naturally as leaves to a tree, then it better not come at all. And then, she gives Keats that pillowcase embroidered with an image of a tree. And I'm just like, I'm gone. I just like little, little <laughs> touches like that just work wonders for me uh, watching this. It's like, ah, oh, I can't wait to watch this again, to be honest. <laughs> I, I have seen this movie uh, probably a hundred times over the last 10 years, 10 plus years. Um, there was a time when I first bought the DVD, I think I watched it three times a week for like, three or four months. <laughs> Are you happy that it wasn't a tape that you could wear out? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. pretty much. Like, but it hasn't been released on Blu-ray in the US. And I'm like, my DVD is going to die at some point. Someone needs to fix this. Um, it's it's just, it, what I think is wonderful about it is that it feels like a poem. Yeah. It hits you like a poem. It rises and falls like a poem. And it, it, I don't know how she did that. I don't, you know, we talk about poetic cinema a lot. And I think Malik is one that people think about a lot as someone who's also kind of achieved that feeling often in his films, but sure. it's, it's difficult. And he doesn't like, I mean, she doesn't rely as much on voiceover as, as he does to, to achieve that. It's because the few voiceover moments that are in it are their actual words. Her camera is underrated. I, that, that's that's one of the things I've been cut. Like I was started to think about this after Power of the Dog, and I really, really got to thinking about this after watching all these movies in a string. Is my God, that woman can shoot the shit out of anything she wants to, and her visual language is just 
off the bloody chart. Yeah, yeah. and the guy who shot this one, it was only his, I think, a third, third feature. Greg which Frazier. Is, which is crazy. Who has like, done, who has also done, yeah, his third feature, he's done some incredible stuff too. Like he did Zero Dark Thirty. He did Killing Them Softly, which is not a great movie, but is shot really well. Oh yeah, that is shot well. He did, he did Lion. He did Rogue One, which is a good movie and shot really, really well. He did Dune. He just, I mean, he just shot Dune. Oh my God. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just could do a whole two hours on this, on this movie. Um, but yeah, I'm obviously we're going to end it with uh, the power of the dog. And again, I talked about this one a lot in the last year end episode. So I don't want to repeat myself too much, but it's a welcome return to, to cinema for, for Campion. Uh, and I don't want to wait another 12 years, <laughs> hopefully for no. another Campion movie. Hopefully she can get budget again. <laughs> like just give her yeah. some money. It's fine. She she's good. I really I, like what I really like what you said, Mariah, in your review about Kirsten Dunst's character as folding inward rather than exploding outwardly. Because honestly, I was a little surprised that she that her character's more in the background because that's not what I expect when I see a Jane Campion movie. Yeah, and what's interesting that she was drawn to this movie in or in the book because Rose in the book is barely there. Mm, and yeah. and I think she fleshed out the the scenes with her a lot more. Sure. And and what's interesting for me, especially if you like Ryan just did watch almost all the movies, is she usually completely focuses on the female character and the violence of men. And I think right. this is the first time where she kind of flips that. Cause I, she's done that, right? She's established that. And now she's really focusing, hyper focusing on, on these men and the and what how they create these situations that cause women to fold in on themselves. That that it's it's time, I guess, finally to explore the cause and not just the um, effect. Yeah, no, that's a great way to look at it for sure. And I think um, I think my favorite shot of twenty twenty one is uh, when the camera pulls back to show George and Rose surrounded by, you know, those mountains and the prairie, like I'm yeah. beyond moved by that moment. Her adaptation of this book is like off the chart. I, ju- I read it last week. Um, thank you, Netflix, by the way, for that. Um, and for the, and for the paper flower that I got with the book. Um, oh, cool. uh, yeah. Um, it's the first time I've ever got the souvenir that I've talked about on my podcast. Um, That's great. There is, she brings out just so much more subtext uh, that, that from the book, the book is very economical. It's not very long. Um, it's one of those kinds of right. It's, it's that kind of writing that it, it's, it leaves a lot for you to kind of glean on your own. And she does um, like specifically the whole, really the whole homosexual subtext is really tamped down, really, really tamped down. Um, but beyond that, just the nature of um, Phil being a, a, a really intelligent person, um, you know, the, the kind of person that can really get under your craw because it's not just that they're an asshole, it's that they're a smart asshole. So yeah. they'll find mm. a way. And they talk about how when they were in university, like the dean called Phil into his office to do George's work for him because he was like falling so far behind. And it's like, how do you portray this? So seeing uh, Campion like 
craft this character with, um, you know, with Cumberbatch and shape it this way. It's like, this is the story we're going to tell about this person. We need to be really specific because if we don't hit this bullseye, we're going to miss by a mile. I also do think, um, I know I read a few, a few reviews, not necessarily from critics, but for people who viewed it and then wrote about it on social who dismissed the portrayal of Phil as not accurate to the West and, to, <laughs> and, and as a, as a um, sure. over, okay. overly subversion, overly yeah. subverted version of a cowboy. Right. Huh. And I was like, most of the ones that I saw this from were from people who were never, never lived in the, in the West. Um, And, and I grew up, I, you know, I grew up in a cow town and I grew up with gentlemen ranchers. And this is one of the few movies I've ever seen where I'm like, this, this guy really reminds me of the kind of gentlemen ranchers who um, have their kids learn to play the violin and have like weird little teacup dogs, but can also like wrestle a cow down to the ground and cut off its testicles, you know, like (laughs) they can do both. And, and I, that's why I do think that casting an English actor who is trained in those, um, trained to be refined like that, but is also a bit rough and tumble. I think it's a really interesting casting and I think it works really well. Whereas I don't know that if you, if you didn't have like a classically trained actor, I don't know that they could hit that um, refinement underneath all the rough and tumble the way that Cumberbatch does. Yeah. He commits so, so much to this character in, in ways that are, and I, I, yeah, I don't get the the criticism that he was miscast honestly at all. No, it, no. it doesn't, it doesn't fit for me. I think it's a perfect perfect casting yeah i think the the other thing i loved the other thing that was um by the way you can you can tell your your old english teacher that they were totally right about this book and this author um this is mariah um the other thing i loved about understood like getting a chance with the book and coming back to the movie is looking at the structure of the end of it and mm. how quick and and how quickly things happen because i know that that's one of the things that jars a lot of people of watching this movie is oh for sure he's there he's there he's there he's gone and literally in the book, it's one page. He's there, he's there, he's there, he's gone. And they don't actually even give you the early clue that they do. The, this, the movie actually does you the favor of planting the seeds early. Of, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, like, huh. of, of mentioning the ultimate device. I don't know why we're skirting it now, but mentioning the ultimate device and saying what kind of men, what kind of boy would I be if I didn't look out for my mother? Like putting those at the beginning, that ain't in the book. You know? what's, what's great about um, the way she teases it is I'm like, I'm sure if my dad watches this movie, he'll heal the minute that they show him poking that dead cow. He's going to be like, oh, I know what's happening. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> I never do. No, I literally yeah. I never catch it. And when it ended the way it ended, I was like, oh, that's why he was poking the dead cow. <laughs> like, the, early, <laughs> yeah. so good. the early I do know the early clue in the book is why don't you wear gloves? The early mm. clue that's that's in that's in the first like two pages. They talk about how Phil talks about how when he sees the other ranchers looking at the Sears catalog about gloves, he's like, ah, you're looking at the gloves again, huh? And he and he doesn't wear he they they make us an early point that he doesn't wear gloves for anything. And if you watch the movie, he never wears gloves. They do bring it up late. They bring it up when they're castrating the bulls. He's oh, like, why don't, yeah, why don't you, why don't you wear the gloves for the castration? He's like, don't eat them. Um, but that's, that's the early clue 
they use there instead of specifically pointing out, hey, don't touch that cow because <laughs> yeah. No, this this movie's a this movie's another masterpiece. Like she can clearly take 10 years off and still crank out masterpieces. Just give her all of the monies. Just give her all the monies and let her do her thing. You know what's what's wonderful? She said the next so it might actually be 10 years because she said no, the next thing. What are you doing? doing Why? I know. Why? She said she said the next thing she's doing is setting up a film school in New Zealand that's going to be completely paid for and I think only take women. Because oh, she wants to train wow. the next generation. Well, great, but I mean, hire assistants. <laughs> 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 Give her all the monies I mean, for that too. Yeah, but she is. I will say she is sixty-seven. So you know, I think she's looking towards that's like good, what can yeah. she do for the future that's and good. training a bunch of up-and-coming women. And I mean, it's kind of the way that um, certain other filmmakers came up, like. Bogdanovich came up under Ford and things like that. Like, mm. um, although Ford, I don't think intended to do that. <laughs> it just <laughs> happened. But you know, it's. I think it's. I think she sees that it's important, and I think she sees her place as an important female filmmaker. And and again, a lot of the women I interview, um, half of them don't like being called female filmmakers, and half of them understand that as a woman, they have had to do more. They've had to push more. And one of the things that, and I get the women who don't want to be singled out. They shouldn't have to be. Um, I get that. But I think one of the things that Campion really understands is that she's an anomaly and, and she had to be the best in order to have this career, you know? And I think I, I really like that she sees her importance and she sees that she can help bring more women forward and i hope that you know we get a whole slew of campions out of campion film school you know know, that would be so wonderful yeah i mean mean, yeah and like i say it selfishly just because of how like as i said watching these all in a watching these all in a cluster i'm like like this is this is an absolute master at her craft the world is lesser that we don't have double this this much we're now you know whatever we are 33 years into her career um i you know i just i that's that's my that's my regret is there should there should be at least like she's got eight features she should have at least 20 at this stage you know i i really and just knowing how many more tools are at her disposal both in terms of capture and in terms of distribution i'm like i just i absolutely want more but all the same like if what you're saying is true and there's no reason to doubt it. Of course. Um, I, I absolutely love and respect that because I also believe in walking away at a certain point and either giving back in another way, but just not working until you die. Cause I just so many filmmakers, so many artists and just in general just seem to think that just there is nothing but time on their hands and they're just going to keep out cranking the work. It's like at a certain point, you want, I just, I want you as an artist to enjoy your life, you know, enjoy your children, enjoy your partner, enjoy, yeah. just do it. Like just, uh, you've given me enough. I don't need more. Well, she did yeah, that after I, bright star, right? I mean, she took that long break to basically be a mom. Yeah. And, yeah. And she, th- then she made she, top of the lake, which I, I want to revisit. I certainly loved what I, I didn't see the second season yet either. I didn't see the second season either. I completely missed it. It's when I didn't have television. And it hasn't, as far as I know, shown up on streaming. Mm. So it's like, if you missed it, you missed it. <laughs> ah. like, no. 
yeah, but no, I mean, we, this has been an amazing conversation. I can't thank you both enough. I, and then, like I said, Jane Campion's become in my top five. I think the uh, other director I think of um, is Kelly Reichart, who I look forward to every single film that she does from here on out. And I, I, I always get excited because she's going to work likely with, you know, with someone like Michelle Williams. And uh, ever since I saw Wendy and Lucy, that's another director. Where I'm like, I am following this career no matter yeah, what. Yeah, Kelly Reichardt really has a unique voice and she hasn't compromised. And I, I love that she can get budgets now too. And still yes. not like, like, she convinced someone to let her make a movie about a guy who steals milk to make biscuits. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, obviously there's more to it mm-hmm. than that, but like on paper, how did she pitch that? I don't know. <laughs> someone saw it. What's the movie called? First cow. What first it's about. Cow. Well, it's about the first cow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and biscuits. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And her I next movie, movie I think is coming out this year and it has Michelle Williams. So yeah, she's teaming with Michelle Williams. One of the great director actor pairings of all time. Yeah, muse. Totally. Mm-hmm. So we end the show with picking our top three favorites by this director. And it's kind of hard. <laughs> it always yeah. is. It always oh, is, man. but mine aren't going to likely change anytime soon. So I, I think I'll go first and just say uh, number three is the power of the dog. Number two is the piano, and number one is Bright Star. Oh, this is hard. Well, you can have Ryan go first. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I think it would be the piano in the cut Bright Star for me. It'd be those three. Yeah. Bright yeah. Star being the number one. I'll go. Yeah, this is hard. This is why I want more movies because I want more options and not have to choose. But like, you know, it's like which which ones? Like, they're all amazing. Um, they are. I will go with. I'll go. I, I'm going to anger you both, but I'm going to go with Bright Star at three, The Piano at two, and Power of the Dog at one. And and oh, no, that doesn't all, me at all and all very close. Like they're all yeah. it's 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 one A, one yeah. B, and one C, just depending on my mood. Oh, exactly. It's 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 one of those cases where the movie I'm watching in the moment might be my favorite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that happens to me with uh, yeah with Paul Thomas Anderson and David Lynch too. Sometimes that's like, yeah with David Lynch. It's like whatever one I just watched last. But if you had to hold a gun to my head and tell me I could only have one, it would be um, um, the Elephant Man, which which pains me. But I just love the Elephant Man so much. And Aww. same with Campion. Like if you said I could only keep one, I would keep Bright Star, but then I would cry. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that completely. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was such a delight to talk with you and two people whose work I enjoy and look forward to and will continue to support in every way possible. Uh, Mariah, where can people find you? I, obviously, I'm going to link to your link tree because <laughs> I know you're yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, I think I've mostly been writing for RogerEbert.com, the playlist Yay. and Crooked Marquee the most in the last few um, months. And that's who I have assignments with for the next few months. So those Sweet. are my three main outlets. Um, and then I'm just sort of everywhere. Um under old film slicker. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Tumblr still. I love Tumblr letterbox. <laughs> I just really started getting to letterbox last 
summer because they paid me to write a piece that I'd been pitching around for like months and they finally, someone loved it. So I figured, oh, I should probably use this website. So it's actually, I actually really like it. I don't know what took me so long. I think I didn't like the color of the background of the website. (laughs) I'm a very aesthetic kind of person. Um, But in terms of, of as a social platform for movie lovers, it really is the, the best. I don't know. Oh, I was sure. just very reticent to use it for far too long for stupid reasons. So <laughs> same for you, Ryan plug away. Mostly been podcasting these days. I'm hoping now that a few more life things are settled that I can get back into the rhythm of writing. But uh, the podcast is the matinee cast, uh, which you can find everywhere that uh, you find your podcasts, uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, Pocket Cast, what have you. Um, I always say to people, if they don't have my show on their platform, just let me know and I'll put it there. Um, if you like me and Mariah talking together, boy, have I got a show for you. Uh, <laughs> because we, we talk at least once or twice a year. Um, and Mariah is actually on tap to do my Oscar episode for this year, um, which will be coming, depending on the time this episode drops, will either have just happened or just be coming up very shortly but um yeah looking forward to 22 because there's all kinds of cool movies coming out that i can't wait to talk about and um yeah it's been it's been fun doing it for as long as i've been able to do it yeah i got a notification on facebook that it's been 12 years it was either today or yesterday since the first matinee cast dropped wow i was like wow i instantly aged so much getting that notification (laughs) I am I am a senior citizen in the podcasting we, realm. We have been how many lives have we led in those twelve years? So no many. kidding, man. <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a wild couple of years for sure. But also just yeah, the past eleven years I've been doing this show. It's like yeah, there's been some ups and downs and some real roller coaster rides to where I'm like, I think I need to have I need to take a break and have other people host it, <laughs> you know. And then I came back and I felt reinvigorated to keep going, and that's. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this year because there will be an, a, a wonderful change coming up as of the summer that I'm mm-hmm. really excited about that I won't spoil yet. But as for everyone else, the next few weeks, I'm going to be binging on movies from the year 1992 because uh, my friends and uh, Chicago film critics Eric Childress and Colin Suter are returning for their yearly tradition of going back 30 years to cover an entire movie year in roughly eh, six hours or so uh, of podcasting, which is crazy. I don't know how we do it, but uh, we do it. And people seem to really love when we do this. So we're going to keep doing it. It's the 1992 retrospective special. That's going to be coming up um, towards the end of February. So no director centric episode next month, but you're in for a treat. I guarantee it until then, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and visit nowplayingnetwork.net to hear a lot of great podcasts. Oh my. Uh, Thank you so much, Mariah and Ryan, for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yay. We'll see you next month, everyone. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Yay. Yay.